Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The Daniel 3 Podcast, Episode 9. Hi, this is uh, Jacob with the uh, Daniel 3 podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm excited to welcome back uh, Joe Hartman. Joe, how are you doing tonight? Good, Jacob. Good to be here. Good. Glad to have you. Uh, For those who didn't uh, watch it or who aren't familiar with Joe, Joe is uh, um, part of the Libertarian Party and Mises Caucus, and he uh, was running for office back this last November. I didn't actually ask, but I, I kind of assume you didn't win, right? I never actually followed up to uh, yeah, <laughs> see what your results yeah. were in the in the. What, what were you running for again? I don't even I don't even remember uh, what your uh, position you're running for was. Yeah, so I I didn't like to say I was running for office. I said I was on the ballot, you know, because my right. name was on the ballot, and I got uh, seven thousand eight hundred ninety-seven votes uh, to be a congressperson. Okay. Uh, I ran against uh, Alyssa Slotkin, Michigan 8th District, and it was kind of fun um, at times. It was also seemingly pointless at other times, <laughs> um, but overall, it was, it was a good experience. It got me more involved with Libertarian Party, and uh, you know, I got to have conversations that were you know enjoyable and interesting, like the one that we had a few months ago. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm uh, not considering doing that again anytime soon, but I think for people who are looking to get involved, it's a fun little activity. And you know, especially if there's a vacant spot where there's no libertarian on the ballot, uh, it's something that I would encourage people to do to some degree. So, right. Do yes. you feel like? Do you feel like? Um, after like, what, what would you say? Like after going through that process, um, like maybe a, a like a positive thing was for you personally. Like we, you were talking about that last time, how like it was, um, you were contrasting it with things you had done in the past, and uh, from a from a standpoint of like personal growth, like what was that process like, and how did it? like take you out of your comfort zone and, and, you know, I mean, that was, that was your first time like doing anything majorly in, in the realm of politics, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I would say the biggest consequence of it, and I don't know if, if we've talked about this at all, but I, uh, through a, a, someone I spoke to during the campaign, uh, in the local area, they reached out to me and encouraged me to, um, seek the, uh, open position on the, uh, village of Pinckney planning commission. So I'm on the planning commission of my little local village now. Um, you know, they appointed me and uh, they were happy to have someone, you know, just be a part of the of the program, I guess. And so anyway, it's been an interesting experience. And one of the main issues has been uh, about the cannabis licensing. So I've gotten to, you know, read. I haven't had much of a input on anything much like planning commission is just kind of overseas. And but I am, you know, actually in government now, but it's on a local level. And um, you know, I got to support a rezoning of a potential, like call it an old building to be maybe used for a better purpose. Um, we also approved a community garden. So they're gonna use some of the money that they took from taxpayers. Um, and instead of, you know, 
putting it to more frivolous things actually you know go towards something that grows produce yeah but, uh, but what, you, what so, you didn't do yes. what you uh-huh. didn't do was you didn't end the daylight savings so we're still not yet do that. not yet <laughs> yes yes that was my uh, absolutely that was a huge push of my campaign i tried to mention it everywhere and there's a lot of momentum um my twitter feed is full of me retweeting and and talking about and trying to promote the idea of locking the clock. I appreciate you bringing that up. It's a crucial issue. We want to make this year the, the killer, the, the final killer clock change. Um, and, uh, so yeah, yeah. If this is something that, um, you want to save lives and oppose government power, it's a great issue. And I think it's, uh, one of the reasons why uh, this goes well, one of the reasons why I thought it was a, a, a good issue to talk about is because, for one, it's an abuse of government power and it kills people. So like, that's bad. But it's also something where there's actually momentum. Like in so many times as a libertarian, we look at the political system and it's like, it's unfixable. Or maybe we trim around the edges, but it's growing way faster than we could ever slow down. And it's just like runaway freight train. But there's people who are, you know, wrong on lots of other issues, but they think that changing the clocks around is a really bad idea. So Marco Rubio has been one that's pushing the bill. And uh, there are the uh, bill in the house has eight co-sponsors. The new bill right now only has eight, but the one from last Congress had 21. There are more people. And like, this is the time of year to pay attention to it. This is the only time people care. And, you know, as uh, you know, a parent of younger children, it really throws them off, you know, having that weird, you know, day, you know, losing the um, hour of sleep uh, is, is a problem. So um, yeah, yeah. It's an issue that, uh, I have not, I don't think I've made any, you know, contribution to raising awareness about it other than the few people that, uh, you know, heard me on some well, yeah, campaign. You, you but raised yeah. awareness to me. I, I didn't realize there was a big movement to end that before I had talked to you. And, you know, now I pay a bit yeah. more attention to it. And, well, it's an and, international movement too. The, right. the, the daylight savings uh, or like the, the clock switch is in the end of March for Europe. And there was a discussion in 2019 about ending it in Europe but they just couldn't schedule the meetings to actually do it. So they've delayed it for 18 months now. And I guess they have to study it more. I, I don't know what there is to study, but it's you know one of those things that, uh, you know, with politics, stoking up fear, getting people mad about something is the way to win. And just maybe if we can piss off enough people this year about it and, and get people to, to contact legislators or just raise the awareness about it. it I don't know. I'm optimistic though. I, I really am. I really think that this could be the last year that we have to endure it. So I got to say, and, and Scott Yates, I've mentioned his name before, but his, uh, his blog tracks everything and he's in contact with all the state legislators. Um, so, you know, check out his stuff, promote his stuff. He's not a libertarian, but whatever, he's libertarian on this issue. So uh, that's, right. that's a great thing. Yes. Yeah. And you know, issue coalitions are important if you're going to be doing politics. So you have to be able to, you know, work with, with candidates and groups that aren't strictly libertarian. Um, and, you know, that is one of the things that the, uh, the Mises caucus, which we are both a part of, uh, focuses on. Um, I know that might be surprising for some people who follow my podcast to, to hear that I say that I'm actually part of the, the, uh, (laughs) the Mises caucus. Now I'd always kind of, you know, from a broad kind of like been, not really involved, but like supported them, gave them a shout out and always liked what they were about. And uh, back a couple of months ago, um, Luke, Mike, and a couple others approached to me about just helping to moderate the uh, Facebook group as far as like, they just needed more more bodies to help, you know, approve posts to monitor the the inflow of new members and, and go through the onboarding process. There's um, 
uh, talks about p- perhaps me being a state coordinator down the road, which I'm not, I'm not, you know, still trying to figure out how much time I can give to it. But I really like what the Mises Caucus is about. Um, when did you, did, did you like join the caucus or did you start becoming affiliated with it during your political run did, or were you involved before then? I can't remember. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure when exactly I like knew that the Mises Caucus existed. Um, on some level, I, I joined the Libertarian Party affiliate in my county in Livingston County, Michigan. Uh, just to, you know, make some connections and meet some fellow libertarians. And I, I found out that um, there were some kind of famous libertarians in, in the area uh, with slightly different views than than mine and slightly different than the Mises Caucus. Uh, but I, I, you know, didn't have much interest in being involved with the party on a larger level until, uh, you know, the Mises Caucus and Spike Cohen. To me, like the fact that Spike got onto the ticket, saying the stuff that he does, being as, you know, radical and and, uh, and, and principled as he is, that that was, uh, you know, a big deal to me. And to see him, you know, instead of Bill Weld, like the, just the Libertarian Party going in that direction, was like, okay, this is something I could be a part of. And then at the convention a month or so later, or I guess before the convention, when I, I brought up the idea of, you know, just kind of wondering who was running for Congress and the fact that no one was, is when the idea became more appealing to me, just to, as a part of trying to make the Libertarian Party brand more like my type of libertarianism which is certainly, you know, Mises and Praxeology and, and Rothbard and Tom Woods and all of, uh, you know, these wonderful philosophers and people with, um, you know, just excellent contributions to libertarian thought and theory. And uh, I attempted to, you know, talk to anyone who would listen to me and, and was interested in having a dialogue. Uh, so in terms of the Mises caucus, getting a bigger part of it, I've, I've been a part of the state organization since, uh, the 2020 part. Um, I met some of those other Michigan members uh, in 2018 at the state convention that I went to in 2018. I wasn't a delegate at that convention. I just showed up to meet people because I was from Florida and I had just moved up here to try to, you know, connect with some libertarian types. And uh, anyway, so I, I don't know. I mean, the Mises caucus is blown up and I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I don't know. I don't follow all of the the controversy. I don't really know. Uh, you know, I, I do often get the the bad side of the story. Like I hear the the critique of the Mises Caucus stuff from some of my fellow members in the county party, but none of that ever resonates with anything I've ever seen. Um, the people in the leadership that I've interacted with have been excellent, hardworking people who share the same goals that I do. So, um, yeah, and I, you know, I just I really love the idea of well, there's two things I I love, and these were like part of what compelled me to kind of move from my position kind of on the fence to kind of, you know, now being, you know, in the outfield playing ball with them. And uh, for one, I really love the the messaging and like the, the fact that their name is the Mises caucus, that their slogan is take human action. I mean, just the more of those ideas, the more that Austrian economics is, you know, put out there for people to have to engage and in, put into social media and the main the mainstream culture I think is important because I, I you know I for me economics isn't just like some nerdy pastime hobby for me like I think economics and and more important praxeology and human action are just like they are fundamental ways to view life and um, to to orient yourself around as far as like you know realizing that 
you have to act that you have no choice but to act and you should be maximizing your your potential by you know setting goals for yourself and and being inspired to do something not to just act without intention or to act like just sort of like you know just being like a a like a casual agent just reacting without really uh like a focus but but rather to be you know inspired to to take control of your life and to orient it around something and um and also i think austrian economics are important to kind of push back against the ever-growing uh reliance on the state and the ever the ever growing uh just kind of like the, the views that you see in in our, our our society and culture today regarding uh you know politics and and the goals that we want to do i mean especially after the covid lockdowns and and everything going on there like it's it's just politics are just more in the mainstream than ever before and you know we need more voices out there speaking out against central planned centrally planned society and you know to me the mises caucus is just an effective force on that front and uh i think that there is utility in having something like a, a force like that that's in the political arena as much as i hate politics i mean you know i'm an i'm an anarchist philosophically i would love to see the state end that's my ideal society is one with no state and no politics um but the but the two things that uh, are in my mind is that one, I I, I don't want to live based upon the nirvana fallacy. I don't want to just like well, my ideal society is without a state, so therefore I will not engage in anything that is involving the state. It's like well, for one, that's really hard to do, <laughs> like to go through life and avoid the state. They they kind of make it hard for you to do that without being like a like a hermit hiding out in the mountains or something. Um, and, and B, um, it's, it's just as much as I want politics to end, I know that A, that might never happen. And B, if it does happen, we have to get people used to that idea. We have to start like, we, we it's not going to happen just because people don't engage with it. In my opinion, to me, it's, we have to, you know, engage in what the true culture war is like people use that term the culture war like it's about the right versus left and to me the real underlying culture war the one that actually matters is those who value freedom and those who who are uh either you know i mean there's some people that just aren't participating because they're agnostic but but there are people that are you know heavily enthralled by by the idea of a state by the idea of centrally planning things of of creating positive rights and positive uh, you know, mechanisms of coercion in, in society. And, you know, a well, lot of people are just yeah. going to pay attention to, they're going to pay attention to the political arena. So like I can put a podcast out there and we already have tons of, you know, we have people, we have Rothbard out there and, and tons of anarchist writing, but if people aren't looking for it, they're not going to find it. You know what I mean? Like, so there has to be some kind of voice for Liberty in the political realm. And that was Ron Paul for a while. Um, but he was just one guy. And to me, the Mises caucus is, I, I made a post in the Facebook group a couple of weeks ago and I was like, you know, the Mises caucus is the, the new Ron Paul movement, but instead of it being focused around one guy, it's, it's all of us. It is, we all can be like Ron Paul and, and from different, different stages of, of life and, and different, 
and different areas enter the political arena. And, and, you know, it's not about like, like one of the straw man arguments you hear from, from, from like the anarchists who, who don't like political involvement. And I sympathize with them, but they're like, well, you're just asking for freedom. It's like, I don't know if you've ever watched what we do. It's not about asking. Like we're pretty like, you know, the way I describe it is like, I'm pissed off for, for freedom. I'm pissed off at statism. And I, I view what the Mises caucus is doing as people going uh, into the system. And they're like Ron Paul. They're saying, no, screw this. This is wrong. This is evil. You know, we should stop bombing children. We should stop selling off our few, our, our children and grandchildren into insurmountable debt that they'll never be able to overcome. You know, these things are, are horrible and they need to stop. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's, that's what, what got me really fired up to join and has, has continued to inspire me since I joined. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what your observations are to, or responses to that. Yeah, no, other than and the fact that you said something about how we could all be Ron Paul, like there's only one Ron Paul. And, <laughs> and that's like the, the legend. And, and really, you know, so many people around our age were inspired and were brought to, you know, this this ideology from from Dr. Paul. And I do think that, um, you know, I have no idea how big of an impact the Mises Caucus has generally. I know that the people that I have associated with uh, have um, really encouraged me and, and made me uh, just excited to have them as friends and to have the discussions and to have people who are, you know, like you said, just as mad and, and, and you know, pissed off and, and ready to, to try to do stuff to make change. Um, but I have, I guess my perception is that it, the biggest part of the change has been within the Libertarian Party and has been trying to mold the Libertarian Party into a true, you know, like viable option that people can look at and have interest in right? And have messaging that is strong. And we've been given a huge opportunity with the failure of the politicians and, and the lockdown state and all this crazy stuff that has happened. And I, one of the you know, things I should have hit harder and more consistently and louder was my opposition to the lockdowns during the congressional campaign. I, I just, so few people were skeptical of it that I didn't get much traction, at least were willing to say, you know, openly that they were skeptical of it. They just kind of went along with it. Um, at least so many of the people I interacted with. And it just seemed like the kind of thing that, that uh, you know, one of my thoughts was that it isn't something that should be decided by federal Congress anyway. So maybe it would be less relevant for me to talk for that reason. But I think, you know, generally we can, you know, try to fit our message to different groups of people in different ways. And that's one of the things that I think the Libertarian Party has uh, struggled to do is to have like the, the so my, my sense is that the the branding of it, the sort of like outreach is targeted towards uh, more like moderate people who are kind of annoyed by Democrats and Republicans, right? Who would probably vote for one or the other, but instead maybe they'll vote for the third party this time. But it's like, instead, we need to be talking to those people who have no interest in the system, who are disgusted by Democrats and Republicans, and many of whom may also have some pretty crazy ideas or some, some different ideas where they, you know, they recognize they hate the state, right, in terms of that uh, litmus test, do you hate the state? They hate the state, and they realize that the government is a source of a lot of the problems, um, but they just may also have some other, you know, kind of out there ideas, uh, which on, on some level, really opposing the state, like, to me, like, I, I think... Social security is a horrific, insanely like terrible, insidious system that 
is like just absolutely, you know, just terrible. Like it's, it's the worst thing. It destroys people. It, it, it you know, makes uh, income inequality so much worse. It entrenches like, you know, wealth inequality. It's an example of systemic racism. Like it's a terrible, horrific policy. Um, but most people are perfectly fine with it and they think it's a good thing. It's actually very popular. And to me, like, that's, that's horrible. Like, that's disgusting. But it would be, you know, very ineffective for me to try to go, you know, preach how bad social security is to people, even if I could put it into a compelling message, you know, I, I it, it wouldn't work, right? Because people have their, their interests bound up in it, and they're, they're used to it. So I think when we have the opportunity, like lockdowns, like, you know, whatever other, you know, government overreaches, like, are, are more obvious, like we talked about before with daylight savings time stuff, it's like when we have these obvious examples, we can use that as a way of getting people's attention and helping them reframe the issue, not about like which politicians should be in charge or who should be making these decisions, but about decentralization, right? And decentralization, decriminalization, um, the Mises caucus is radical on, on those fronts. And I think that's, that's just awesome. Um, and I'm happy to be a part of it. It's hard to imagine like what it could look like in a few years. That's one thing that I, I really, I have no sense of what the Mises Caucus could look like by 2024. I feel like, you know, it could be a massive force uh, it could be, you know, slightly larger than it is now. Um, I feel like we're, we're having lots of growth. I know our Michigan group has been growing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about that, but I think, you know, finding the right people to be in the leadership, uh, like, you know, like to me, I, I think Spike is great. I had the uh, you know, a fun conversation with him a few weeks ago on his show talking about being appointed to the planning commission as a, a, a local, a libertarian winning an election, which I, I didn't win uh, anything really. I just got appointed, but hey, I got into office from running an election. So that was the point of the story. Uh, but I think like someone like him who has, you know, a, a clear message, a strong, you know, radical and principled message that we need, you know, more spikes out there making more noise. So yeah, and the Mises Caucus, you know, supporting people like him and others having bigger and bigger roles in the LP is is a definite a win. So, and then, yeah, that's that's that is an important other point of this is that is is the, you know, and some people like the Mises Caucus. A lot of the leadership have phrased it as it is a takeover, which has, you know, been controversial to some. Yeah, to me, I think we should call it Build Back Better. <laughs> like the Biden thing, right? That's yeah, what the yeah. Mises Caucus is trying to do. Yeah, I remember when you said that uh, a while back. I was like, mm. "That's that's awesome." We that that would be that would be the ultimate trolling message to make. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you know, the, the the LP is an important part of this too, because as much as the Mises Caucus is growing, it still doesn't have the, the name recognition that the Libertarian Party does, and it's it is the biggest political party outside the duopoly in in the country and so uh having the libertarian party be principled in its message is important you know i'm still pretty agnostic or skeptical about political action as far as like a means to freedom like i don't think that winning elections is the equation to or the or the uh formula to getting to liberty so, so much but I do think that that using the Libertarian Party as a um, Angela uh, McArdle put it this way in one of her uh, interviews, she's like it should be like a a, a shit talking prophet <laughs> that that just literally just spends all of its time blasting liberty and pointing out all the bad ways in which the status policies that are being enacted or that are that are being enforced are going to result in 
destruction of people's lives and wealth and 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 property and and, and their happiness and and the erosion of their freedoms. And you know, the Libertarian Party should have been louder than anyone in condemning the lockdowns and in, in condemning what's happened in 2020. And we could barely get the party to tweet out a you know a couple lukewarm statements about uh, you know about what the the state did. You know, even if even if the lockdowns end, like even if they 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 relinquish their control over these things, they're not going to forget how easy it was to implement that kind of control. And now it's like you know, because yeah. this isn't me making a, a a statement about COVID. Like I'm not one of those people that is out there saying COVID is a hoax. COVID is not a big deal. I mean, I had COVID. It 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 sucked. Like mm-hmm. I have asthma. Um, so it really rocked me. I mean, I was lucky I didn't have to be hospitalized. I was very close to asking my wife to drive me to the hospital while I had COVID wow. because it was so incredibly hard to breathe. So this is not about denying the, the, the you know, science, not about denying the, the seriousness of, of COVID as far as like, now, I mean, on the same token, I think there was a lot of fear mongering and a lot of pushing, you know, making things seem as worse as possible, you know, as bad as possible in the media and trying to stir up fear, which I don't think is helpful. But, um, but this isn't about the dying, denying the science or saying that, you know, I felt like there aren't responsible measures that people should take and that the market could take towards COVID and, and, and pandemics. But this is about the state forcing these things on people at, at, you know, what, what, and how does the state do it at the point of a gun? And we literally saw the state, you know, and police officers like uh, handcuffing parents who were just trying to take their kids to the park. And, and I mean, that, that, that is just surreal. Like I never thought in America, I would see police officers arresting parents for taking their kids to the park. Like that is just ridiculous. And, and the libertarian party, we, we, we could barely get them to come out and say, oh yeah, this is bad. It's like they they just were too reluctant to say it because it was unpopular. But I was like, you know what? You know, if if you're too concerned about, you know, uh, sucking up and looking respectable to the political establishment, well, then why do you exist? <laughs> it's like if if you're too afraid to actually stand up and speak out against the existing establishment for liberty, then why call yourself the libertarian party? It just doesn't make sense to me. And so that's why I'm okay with the idea of the Mises caucus building back better or, or taking over or whatever you want to call it. Cause the libertarian party should be more libertarian, um, you know, and, and between those two things, you know, the, the Mises caucus, you know, the, 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 the internal politics of the, of the LP and then the, the outward uh, mission into the world, I, I just think that it's, you know, it, it's not the end all be all. Like, I'm not going to devote 100% of my time here, but, you know, I'll be damned if I am not, you know, I, I think division of labor applies to not just people doing different things, but just also in our own lives. We don't necessarily have to focus on one thing. And there's lots of things I do. And I just figured, you know, if I have extra time and resources to devote to this, I, I think this is, you know, like if I'm hedging my bets and trying to, do things that are productive for liberty. I, I just can't justify not having at least somewhat of a hand involved in this. Um, so that's why I've gotten more involved. And, you know, p- part of that was me thinking 
about these things in the terms of praxeology and, and try to figure out, you know, what is the best use of my time and resources. And, you know, I mean, I was like, well, what else can I do? Like I'm one person, like I have a podcast, I can go out there and engage people on social media, but I mean, I'm just one person versus joining a group of people who are like-minded and, you know, doing that, I think we can be more, more effective. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a praxeological, you know, argue, argument to be made there. Although I, I haven't, I, you know, I didn't flesh it out in my head that way, but I was thinking in those, uh, you know, that, that is what motivated my thinking was that like, I want, you know, my goal was like, I'm, I'm uneasy with what's going on around me and I want to do what I can as an individual to, to fight for liberty. And what are my best avenues of doing that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's always um, a variety, you know, an, an infinite variety really of, of different ways that you can, um, you know, look at opportunities to, uh, you know, both fulfill your need to contribute and to do something, right? The need to act. And when you're talking, you, you described praxeology earlier, um, you're talking about in the sense of what people should do, right? And, and that we can see ourselves as, uh, you know, a human who acts and has responsibilities and, and um, you know, finds ways to use yourself as a means in, in pursuit of, you know, higher goals. And I think that's not often the way that that's not always the way that praxeology is, is usually talked about, where it's it's just a descriptive sense of the fact that we do act, you know, creates this incentive structure. And when you see that, you know, when you have that that way of looking at the world and recognizing what different groups incentives are in, in the in the um, economics in one lesson sense where uh, with, with the discussion of how, you know, different economic groups um and, and, and so like, but looking at where you want to contribute and try to add value to a certain group or to, um, you know, a certain purpose, uh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's what, and, and so like being able to be a part of the Mises caucus and have, you know, really, at least for me, I've, I've no, uh, you know, inhibition about being a part of the group. And like I said, there are people in the group that I don't know very well that, probably have said things that I certainly don't agree with, but whatever, who cares? That's the way it is with every single group of people. And I'm certain that anybody in the Mises caucus, right, has much, uh, to me, much more peaceful and more ethical views than like, you know, Pete Buttigieg or uh, Tom Cotton or something, right? Like, like it's not even close because these people have the view of that dichotomy, like you're talking about, of liberty versus power. Um, in which, you know, Rothbard always writes about where it's that that that's where the tension is. And I think that too often uh, the discussion gets reduced down into like people, like groups of people that are fighting for authoritarianism or like we call them statists and we use all of our libertarian lingo, but it doesn't really connect with the way that they're describing because, you know, like progressives see their policies as increasing freedom. Like they use that kind of language a lot of times, right? And there's the the line about like injustice anywhere. Injustice anywhere means, wait, I don't know something. Like, injustice anywhere means justice cannot. I don't know. There's one of the phrases I don't even know what it is. But it's one know, of those things it, where, yeah. yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, oh, it's bugging me now. But it's it's an idea that has some truth to it. 
But at the same time, it can be used as a, as a, as a hammer, you know, to say like, if you don't care about this group of marginalized people and want to have law enforcement change the rules up on them, then you don't care about them and you're supporting injustice. And it's like actually the opposite argument where, you know, our, our goal is to increase the, the agency and, and the, the freedom of individuals. Yeah. Right. In, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. There it is. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I was looking for. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I knew what you were talking about, but I, I was <laughs> yeah. like, I, I couldn't get there. Yes. Is the, is the threat. That was the word I was missing is the, the threat to, to justice everywhere. And I think like, sure, there's, there's definitely some truth to that, but it's like, that can't be the determining factor of whether a policy is justified just because it, in some people's perspective, stops one version of injustice if it spreads injustice to other groups. And that's where that, that you know, the, the, just the, the abuse of political power, um, there's so few people fighting against it and the Mises Caucus has a strong message against it. So, you know, that's to me. Well, and it's like, people will sometimes be very, we, we talked about this last time, like people have a hard time getting uh, sold on Austrian economics because it, you know, Austrian economics kind of bo does boil down everything to, uh, to private property in a sense to, you got people who are self owners acting in their own, you know, self-interest and, and, making transactions in the market based upon their own subjective values. And when it comes to viewing things in that way and, and understanding scarcity and understanding, uh, you know, how, how economies work, people will accuse libertarians of, of our persuasion of, of kind of like a callousness. It's like, oh, well, why are you so focused on property rights? when like there's people starving like you know i don't care about you know not violating not violating property rights like to them it's like that's just you know they're, they're so driven by their by their empathy for and, and i get that like i totally get that being so driven by your empathy that you focus on well there's people starving and there's people without jobs and people without health care and you're like we just we need to give people what they need and like i i, I I so understand that, that I used to be that way. I mean, in 2015, I supported Bernie Sanders. Like I was, I was driven by that until, yeah, Joe's like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah uh, but, well, but, think... it, but what, then I was challenged by different libertarian voices I encountered to be like, okay, yes, we care about people, but let's figure out like, what are the consequences of, these courses of action? What are the consequences of having these particular uh, worldviews and systems that, that you want to impose? You know, not just short-term, but long-term. How do these things play out? What, what, what are we gaining as, as, as a consequence? And the, the, the difference between that worldview and like the one I have now is that while my world, like while, while now it might seem to people that I'm not driven by empathy, I still do have great empathy. I just know that we can't, it's like, it's like we have to be I'm trying to figure out the best way to put this. It's kind of like the, the metaphor of the airplane where it's like, you have to, to put your mask on before you put other people's mask on during like a crash. Um, well, we, yeah. we, you know, we, we can't be so driven by empathy that we don't realize the long-term consequences. Cause if we focus on empathy in the short term, sure. We might help some people, 
But if that causes long-term suffering, that's just not a good course of action. We need to figure sure. out what has the best long-term uh, benefits for people's well-being and ability to to have all you know all the, the freedom that they 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 sh- we want them to have. Not you know economic freedom, social freedom, uh, you know the ability to be healthy, the ability to, to to freely travel, like all these things that we want. We can't get there just because we impose those things. Uh, through the monopolistic power of the state, creating you know positive you know uh, positive rights you know to, as opposed to positive rights for those who don't know, meaning that it's something that you're entitled to. You can demand people provide for you as as opposed to negative rights, which are you know things that I, I merely uh, you know it requires people to not act. So like a negative right being uh, my right to self ownership, like you can't aggress against me. Uh, this is sometimes just explained by, uh, described as the non-aggression principle, meaning you can't initiate force against people. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's tough. And, and this is where something, I think this can tie into what we wanted, the, some, one of the subjects we wanted to talk about, which is argumentation ethics, which I think is a, a good way to get into uh you know, praxeology and Austrian economics and to kind of understand these things, um, or, or at least it's a, it's a good, it, it's one good argument to, to get there at least. Yeah, I mean, I think argumentation ethics is fun. It basically means like, you can't argue and be a statist, or you're just self-contradicting. Right. Like, that's that's really what it boils down to, at least my, my understanding of it. That, that's the basic premise. And I think like, just to, to go over, you know, my, my, like uh, approach to, to praxeology is just that the idea, it all starts with the action axiom, the idea human action is purposeful. And that describes, you know, praxis. And then the, the logos is the study of that. So the ology, you know, being the, the study of human action and just the simple, so we, we just logically deduce the idea, okay, so if human action is purposeful, well, that action, you know, is, is about using means in pursuit of ends. And so one of the, the things that is misunderstood and one of the things I, I enjoy kind of, or at least I used to, is seeing things like praxeology debunked. And then you read it and it's like, well, the person doesn't really understand. Like, because the way that Mises describes, and it's early in, in human action where there's a, a big section about how all human action is rational according to the way that he describes rational. Like it's impossible to act in a way that you don't choose to. Like, and so even if you're, uh, um, you know, like, like Jesus, right? Like, so the story of Jesus, he was still doing what he wanted to at any point, he could have, you know, punched a guard in the face, or he could have, you know, like resisted or something, but he, you know, uh, always acted according to his own interest. If someone is, you know, um, like, uh, like the story of Spartacus acting against his slave masters, it's the same sort of thing, like all of the other slaves were doing what they wanted to, and he did what he wanted to. And, but it's like, but it's the the phrasing a lot of times when you try to describe like the difference is it's like too simplistic. It's like when you try to say people do what they want, it's like Cartman from South Park, like, <laughs> you know, I do what I want. And uh, so I think, um, you know, with with that, the, the, the simple idea that people will do what they want, right, is the argument against political hierarchy. Because if you give people the power to do what they want and you create these incentive structures that punish people for 
you know, being adaptive and responsive and coming up for good ideas and they incentivize, like it is, it is so shocking to me and it shouldn't be, but it's still shocking to me that Biden won and that Nancy Pelosi is the speaker of the house. Like how in the hell did that still happen? It's so crazy. And like, when people look back at our society during these years, they're going to be like, wow, Trump was, this guy was president. And then they're going to be like, and then they got Biden. And like, they're going to watch these (laughs) videos of these people who are leading the country, right. Who are the democratic rulers or whatever. And it's just going to be shocking. Like, I'm convinced. Like, you know how, if you ever seen like a video of Hitler and he's all like yelling and like waving his arms, it's like, God, what the hell was wrong with those people? How could they embrace? That's what they're going to look back at our leaders. Like, you know, these people that, you know, have this, you know, Scott Horton's been really blown up talking about like the blood soaked country and how, you know, it's just so terrible what the U.S. military system or the uh, U.S. military industrial complex does all across the world. And I think like, you know, so many people in our country are just passively whatever about it. They're happy to, you know, take their $1,400 stimmy and, uh, you know, just go along with it. And I think, yeah, anyway, so in, in terms of the the complacency that comes from these government programs as well is it, it fits right into that, that incentive structure of praxeology where there's something empowering about like desperation and self-sufficiency and like when you're kind of stuck on your own, you realize that you have to do stuff. And I think, um, you know, there's just the, the the political system robs people of that self-sufficiency, of that, you know, um, intentionality. It, it fills the gap for them and provides, you know, and, and I think, you know, there's a place in America where people have guaranteed housing and healthcare. There are lots of places all around the country where American citizens are provided with free housing and free healthcare, you know, and, and it's called prison. So there's millions <laughs> of people, I, you know, right. Or, or if you're over 65, but it's true. And, and it's <laughs> totally, I totally did not see that coming. I wasn't I was sure like, if you knew where I was going with that, but I was like, I was like, yeah, I, guess, I was like section eight housing. I thought you were being hyperbolic. No, I was no, like, I'm saying like descriptively, no, like, you're, like literally, you're right. right? It's, it's true. <laughs> and I think, and in plus, but it's not, it's not free by any sense, right? Like the government no. pays you know, tens Nothing's of thousands free. of dollars. Nothing it's, is it's free. insane. No, uh, well, there's always a, a cost and there's always a use of means, right? And so those means are, are at a cost. And I think that when people, like to me, the, the big, um, the, like the dichotomy between means and ends is about like how the individual sees yourself, right? You're always going to be a part of your ends. If you, the more people you include in your ends, the more joy you get from succeeding in the pursuit of your ends, right? The more people you're able to serve or, you know, provide something to or connect with. And then on the other side of it, if you see yourself as a means, you can see that as an opportunity or you can see yourself as a victim of having to do, you know, just to survive, right? Like that, and, that, and it's real, like both, there, there is a tension there. But I think like the more that you're able to kind of look at, to, to recognize the idea that we're students of our actions. So just keeping that humble, curious approach as students need to, to be successful. And, uh, you know, thinking about it in that sense, and then recognizing that the pursuit of ends, it's, it's up to you. You can value things however you want. And um, yeah. So oh, argumentation ethics. Yeah, I kind of forgot about that one. Yeah, but anyway, I, I basically already summarized argumentation ethics because that's literally what it boils down to is that idea that by, you know, an, an argument in and of itself, right? So if we were to argue about something or uh, have an argument that you recognize by having that argument that the two individuals are capable of holding different ideas. And so in that fact of arguing and trying to change their mind, right? In the nature of argument, trying to come to a, a, a synthesis, like either 
find a common point of agreement or you know really parse out and fine tune and see exactly where the point of disagreement is like that process inherently acknowledges that the people have that, that you and and the other person you're arguing with have a different perspective that you're both capable of having your own set of subjective value hierarchy right so it's like that's that's the point that in it happens in an argument right and so at that point you can recognize okay yes i know this person has a different idea than me and argue and in that sense you are acknowledging that arguing is better than violence right because the idea of allowing their idea to go on without um you know changing your mind it's like that acknowledgement means that if you also support state violence then in that sense you're not acknowledging that person's inherent nature and not like in a right sense but like that it is their nature that they have their own set of ideas and so advocating for state violence or other forms of socialism or whatever else um that that violates that that fundamental premise that is arguing and i think that the people who are the most authoritarian or censorious or intolerant are also really really bad at arguing right a lot of times you'll see that where instead of coming up with like a viable argument to the to someone who's you know makes a point they disagree with they go to ad hominems or other you know fallacious arguments so that's i think there's there's something Shut about up. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, for exactly. And it's like, I have plenty of disagreement with Ben Shapiro. Right. But to me, right. like he will argue and he will put a, a fairly right. decent, you know, straightforward argument against whoever he disagrees with. So I think there's a difference compared to someone else who will take a horrible straw man or, you know, start calling people racist or whatever else. You know what I mean? Like that it's, it's yeah. The, to me, like arguing is ethical. Right. I, I love the way you put it. I, I, that's that's really good way to put it. Anytime you argue, you are conceding that argument is better than violence. And if, if you if, if you concede that, then you can't be you can't be consistent and be a statist. Well, I think but also, <laughs> you know, and, and just also within that, that you also acknowledge that the argument is worth it. Right. Like right. you could just ignore the other person and be like, yeah, that's their idea. And so so you're kind of also acknowledging that their ideas matter. Right by going through the process of argument, you're saying that they're you're, you're acknowledging that their ideas matter, or you wouldn't use your own you know time and uh, and, and uh, whatever method of communication to have that argument to engage in that argument. So you're you're you know, and I think social media is like a bad version of that a lot of times because the ethics of the argument get lost in the back and forth and the time lap, you know, the the gap between the messages, and you know, it, it becomes more of like a, a showing off to the broader audience than it is actually an intent to change someone's mind or to communicate your point as clearly as possible. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the social, social media grand grandstanding. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> happens, exactly. Virtue signaling, right? right. The virtue signaling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And yeah, the way, the way, the way I first heard uh, argumenta argumentation ethics described to me was like, you cannot argue against the premise of, self-ownership and private property without explicitly and implicitly demonstrating that you you agree and recognize self-ownership and private property because if you if you reject self-ownership and private property how can you have an argument with someone how can you you know recognize someone as a sentient being who is responsible for their actions and their words and their arguments and expect them to treat you in the same way like it's so it, it just it just throws 
the idea of of statism out out the window. Although it's and it 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 it, it creates that foundation of really challenging the idea of using coercion and force to push ideas. And it's it's very similar to that slogan, like what good ideas don't require force. It's it, it's very similar to to, yeah. to that to that slogan, which is like, you know, the minute it's kind of like um you said this the, the last time it's like uh you know why would you want to be offended like because like uh, being offended is almost like a sign of like y- you lost and it's it's like and, and it's kind of like the same thing applies to like uh relying on violence and force it's like the minute you are are offended and then you you retreat back to ad hominem or you retreat back to using some kind of force or violence well you admit that you have lost the ethical argument you admit that you have lost the moral high ground. And I mean, it, it's different if you're responding to someone who's, initi- you know, someone initiates force against you. Well, now you're just acting defensively. But the minute, the minute you know, someone escalates from words to violence, um, you know, they're, they're conceding. Well, yeah, and I think there's, you know, I don't want to try to, like, misuse the word aggression. But I do think that there's, there's an opportunity to, to apply the nap right, to apply the a principle of non-aggression to communication, where if you're out there in bad faith arguments, and you're, you're not, you know, trying to be as, because like, it's, to me, it's either you're trying to understand the other person, or you're trying to use them, right, as a means for your own virtue signaling, or for to make yourself feel better. And I think, you know, if, with the way that we just described arguments, um, you know, a, a, you know, sort of normie person or whatever would think, well, Democrats and Republicans argue, but it's like, not really, you know what I mean? Like, like that's, there's no, there's no like substantive, uh, you know, I guess there, there are some substantive policy discussions here and there about, you know, like which version of a certain bill should pass or like kind of, you know, within a, a narrow, at least what we would consider a narrow range of options, there's a little bit of discussion, but there's not a, a sort of like, you know, uh, an actual like discussion about ethics or, you know, like, like ideology right. and, and they're, applying they're arguing over how over. they're arguing over how fast to drive towards the cliff that they're, that we're driving towards. <laughs> one, sure. one, one yeah. says, you know, uh, can we go cruise control in the right lane? And the other side goes, no, 85 in the left lane all the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's also, it's kind of like they imagine they're, they're driving a bus and it's like, which passengers do they care about the most? You know, and which ones are they most able to just abuse? Well, and it's all, you know, it's all which a show. Which one can they get away with? Sure, it's all, it's exactly. all a show too. Like I don't know if you saw. Did you see um, the uh, Michael Malice interview with uh, Justin Amash? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was a, no. that was a good one. Um, I meant to watch it, but yeah, I'm a was little a good bitter. One. Michael Malice blocked me on Twitter, so I've been bitter about it ever since. Oh, oh, Michael- I still actually. I mean, no, I've watched <laughs> his. I've still watched his show a bunch of times. I tried to be funny, and he has this thing about like, don't try to make jokes on my jokes, or I'll block you. So anyway, yeah, it was a couple a, years ago now, and I've just all because it's a lot of times I'll see someone say "ha ha Michael Malice" or something, and then it's blocked, and I have to, you know. Anyway, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Malice has a weird personality, so sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. But but it was a really guy. good interview. I like what Amash, uh, he asked Amash about the uh, about Congress, and like he was like, "How much of what we see is reality?" As far as like how much they hate each other, and he's like it is all scripted and all theater. He was like, yeah. you see people yelling at each other, the cameras go off and then they're like walking over and, you know, I've got a bite to eat. You know, it's like, it, it, it is just such a freaking, I mean, he said, he says like for the most part, like there's, you know, obviously. 
I would know, bet. So, I would bet AOC really hates Ted Cruz. Right. I, yeah. I would say I'll probably believe that one. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> but at the but same no, time, I, yeah. at the same time, it's like it's also weird. Like you brought up how weird it is that like we have Donald Trump and then we went to Joe Biden, and like one of the weird things that I've noticed and like Dave Smith brought this up is like, isn't it weird how like the boomer generation is basically like doesn't has not relinquished power to the younger generations yet. Uh, which like we just keep going like we keep going well, through just all the old guard like the youngest president we had over the last but you know, during my lifetime was obama and yeah. it's not like he was a you know super young guy and then donald trump was a bit of an anomaly but well like, i think i think bush clinton and donald trump were all like born in the same summer right yeah <laughs> something like that it's like like yeah legit like 20 years of presidents born in the summer of whatever 1940 something and it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And Eric Weinstein is someone Weinstein. Yeah, Weinstein yeah. is someone who talks about that a lot and talks about how there are so many boomer college presidents and so many like like the age range has continued to grow and those people have kept power. Um, he's an interesting character in a lot of ways and very skeptic of the political system. Um, yeah, I like, I like I like the Weinstein brothers. I think yeah. they're, they're interesting to listen to. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, it's you know. And, and, and it's yeah, our political system has become so effed that we got we went from we went from like an egomaniac uh, uh, guy who couldn't stop saying dumb stuff on Twitter and <laughs> like literally having like a having like a sitcom not a sitcom, like a like a uh, game show host for president to to an old white guy with dementia and we're not allowed to talk well, about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, and, and the thing that I. I really thought that at the beginning, I got to admit, I recently heard a clip of Trump talking about how we can, you know, wash masks. And he's like, we have great liquids. <laughs> like you just, anyway, I just, it just kind of, I just missed him, you know, in the moment. It was like, damn, this, this guy, at least he was entertaining. <laughs> like, yeah, where it was worth, man, he was good for a laugh or two a week. Well, well now there's like and, nothing. Now it's like, they're like, the, like the, like the media, like they don't know what to do. Like, like no, they hated yeah. Trump, but like he was their what? greatest, he was their yeah. greatest asset. Cause now it's like, what do we talk about? We have a an old well, old guy president Andrew that does Cuomo. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> talk about Andrew Cuomo now. Yeah, right. I, I think <laughs> when it comes to the uh, um, the like discussion around uh, you know, like the um, I forget where I was going with that. The uh, <laughs> what were we talking about? Talking about Donald Trump made me laugh. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. So when Trump was elected, I really thought that there would be like you know uh, Republicans that got really disgusted by the establishment, and it turned out it was just the establishment Republicans that kind of broke off away from the rest of the party, and the whole party rallied around Trump so hard. And I thought when Biden got elected that there would be a lot of you know like real leftists, like you know the real conservatives would leave Trump and want a more libertarian society, and maybe that would happen with the left now. And I think maybe a little bit, especially with the Biden war stuff. Like real leftists really don't like war. They really don't like the immigration detention camp, oh my whatever stuff, which is terrible, so bad. And you know, one thought that I uh, that I had that I, I don't, I want to try to say it somewhat clearly, but it's almost like it's a perfect metaphor, right? Where like all of the stuff about how Democrats are going to be so kind to immigrants coming in and migrants and all of that, like it's a perfect bait and switch. Like they tricked all of those people to come here. Whereas those, I would, I mean, it's easy to imagine a family considering coming up north to, you know, to try to get into the country and not wanting to do it when Trump was president because, you know, they were scared of their kids being locked in cages. 
but then now they're like, okay, now we'll be welcomed. And they're not, they're still getting, you know, they're, they're getting screwed over by the government now anyways, but it's like now they're, it's, uh, you know, a welcome mat before the cage instead of, you know, like a MAGA sign in front of the cage. Right. So and it's, and it's, it's and it, actually and it, worse. It's actually worse. And you could imagine that the rhetoric makes it worse. That that's the part that I'm, I'm trying to say right, where you exactly. can see how like the, the, generous method and the generous messaging and sounding so kind actually backfires because the government is totally incompetent and it actually hurts people worse than right. it, which is in yeah anyway so it's like a weird there's a tension there but i think it's it's a good example it, it illuminates the nature of so many government policies they promise the world and they end up locking you in cages and it's tragic and it's but, only know, getting worse so but, yeah. but like you know at least at least the people in the 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 people in yemen now can can be comforted that like well hey these bombs that are blowing up our town they seem more they seem more tolerant you know and more uh more 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 uh, lgbt friendly so you know it's 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 all better <laughs> it's it's, yeah. it's oh, just it it, it 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 i laugh but it also enrages me and saddens me and and it's like i i, I have a close family member of mine i think i brought her brought her up last time who was so mad at me for not voting for biden because like she was afraid that trump was going to win and all these bad things were going to happen and i was just like i guarantee you biden will get into office and nothing will change it was like uh, and i kept trying to tell her i was like i can't just keep voting like voting for duopoly candidates because you're afraid of the other one is exactly the way the system is designed to keep us trapped in this murderous murderous authoritarian empire that that we have you know fallen you know that 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 we're that we're part of that that people are complicit in and to me the way i I like to phrase it or not that i like to phrase it but to me like we could call it we've lived through the past 100 years has been the century of national socialism thinking about it as starting the way i I look at at least in, in world war one um this is kind of impacted by some i shouldn't just call it glenn beck stuff because it's just history really (laughs) but like the the sykes pico agreement and the stuff that happened in the late uh 1919 and around the time of the treaty of Versailles, they like drew all the maps of the world and made all these countries that kind of existed before but they really formally made it like a global thing and the league of nations and then ever since then like they came up with more and more you know fiat currencies became the norm they went off the you know the the government and central banks became more and more powerful and the corporate structures became more and more powerful, both in America and around the world. And, you know, one of the things that I saw recently, and, and I mentioned this earlier with my hatred of, of social security as just the, you know, a horrible system, but I saw that, you know, the, the Nazis had an old age program as a part of their, um, you know, when they took over and, and they won elections, right? They were democratically elected, at least in the most part. But during the years that the war was just taking off and they were taking over some of the, like they went into Poland and a couple other countries, um, that they uh, they doubled the size of their, what would be social security, of their old days pension program, including paying off a lot of the people in the new countries that they were going into. So they started just paying off all of their citizens and they were able to do worse and worse and worse things and, and demand the sort of loyalty or complacency that is required to commit atrocities and, and, you know, and maintain power over a large uh, society. And I think, you know, the only, the reason I ended up going into that was because of our, my discussion with some uh, 
other libertarians who were saying that it, you know, it's not socialism or national anyway. So that was that was what the discussion was. And I think, you know, it, it's the programs like that where they just shovel out money to all of the politically connected people, or you know, give everyone a little little stimmy, as apparently it's called. Um, it, it's this idea that, you know, that's the way that they maintain their power. They're just, you know, there's a well, yeah. Um, and I, I think it's it's just tragic, but that's why I think you know calling it the century of national socialism is is fairly accurate, uh, just in a simple you know what those words meant and mean, and the pro like you can point in and to me every example of of tyranny and oppression and and um, you know murder and war crimes around the world has happened on behalf of a state of some level of socialism, whether you know more of a communist type or what some people would call capitalist, but you know, with a centrally run um, monetary system, and many times, or at least heavily regulated healthcare system, um, and I think we're about to outgrow it. You know, I got to say, I'm white pilled in the sense that I'm very optimistic. To me, like it's reaching the point of collapse in a good way, where it'll take a while, and I think that there's plenty of reason to think that it could be relatively peaceful. I mean, I, like I'm optimistic across the board that. Literally, it'll just phase out. the The dollar will just kind of go away. The federal government will become less and less relevant, and will you know grow into decentralized communities. And hopefully, with technology, we can protect ourselves from potential aggressors. I, I really think like the, there's there's a real path there uh, in the next you know decade or twenty years or so. Yeah, the, the, I have reason to hope too. And 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 you know, I'm, I might not be the most white pilled, but but I, I try to I try to be you know. I'm I'm sitting with the white pill and I'm I'm crushing it up into my water and I'm taking sips from it maybe. You're not gonna snort it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, one yeah. passage, you know, we got we got to bring some Jesus into this. Mm -hmm. Um, one passage I think really kind of speaks to all this. This is Mark 10, uh, starting in verse 42. Uh, but Jesus called them to himself and said, them being his apostles, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers. The word there in the Greek is archists over Gentiles, lord it over them, and their and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be um, be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Or the real the real better word be servant, not slave. Um, for, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. And, and I think, you know, like leaving some of the, the, the theological, like there's a little thing at the end where Jesus is kind of referencing some, you know, uh, messianic prophecy. But, but the other thing there is saying, if you want to be great, like if you want to be, be a great ruler, even the great leaders are people who serve people, not people who, who lord and rule over everybody with power and, and, and might. And, 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 and to me, it's like part of the problem of our society right now is, is it, and, and like even the people that might have good intentions that are wrapped up in like I was talking about, like that, you know, what I would call like a pathology of, of, of empathy, where like they're just so well, I want people to have health care. I want people to, to have housing. I want people to be taken care of. It's like, yes, but how you do things is important. And if you are going through life advocating that, that we need strong men to rule over people, to make things the way you want to be them, according to Jesus, you are last. 
not first. Because if you want the world to be better, it's not about electing strong men to rule from on high and to, and to and from top down uh, force people to do things. But rather, you need to be a servant. You need to go out there. And if you don't like the way the world is, you need to go be the change. If you don't like the fact that people are starving, go feed them. If you don't like the, pe- the fact that people don't have the health care they need, you know, go find the people that, that are, you know, struggling, whether they're homeless or they have unpaid medical bills and, and help, you know, donate whatever you can help organize GoFundMes and fundraisers, you know, you know, especially the church, you know, this message is for everybody, but I'll, you know, especially as a Christian call out my, my fellow Christian brothers and sisters as a church, like we need to do better. We need well, to I be think, not not sure. just be looking to to and we, we do a good job of uh, I'm not saying we don't do anything but we just we we need to do more and we need to be less focused with uh, building bigger buildings and we need to be focused on bi- bi- building bigger and better ministries and going out there and 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 you know another passage that comes to mind is you know the least of these Jesus said what you've done to the least of these you've done unto me and to me that is part of what's missing from society which is like, listen, I don't want people to starve on the streets. I don't want people to suffer. But, but, but how do we solve these problems? Do we solve them with strong men and authoritarianism? Or do we solve them by being a servant, by going out there and, and you know, doing what you feel called to do? And, you know, it, it, it's great if you have that passion to help people, but then go out there and live and, 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 and live out that passion. And, and, and even if I'm going to, you know, take take a step back and get off being morally outraged at how people do this. It also just doesn't work. Like it's yes, so exactly. it's so inefficient. Yeah. It's so yeah. like 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 you know, if we compare private charities to the state, even the worst run private charities are so much better than state run welfare. Because the state-run welfare is so bogged down with bureaucracy, there's no accountability, there's no competition there. Um, like within the state, it's just, you know, half the money is just just, and then and then the money gets thrown to people, but it's not, it's just thrown at them, and that's a lot of times just throwing money at problems doesn't help. Like if you have a business that's failing, like what's say like not not failing because of lockdowns or outside influences, but just like the business isn't doing well, just just throwing them $10,000, like maybe it helps, but at the same time, if they've gotten to that point because they've made mistakes, then just giving them $10,000 to blow through to keep making the same mistakes isn't going to help them. Like help is not just about, let's just throw resources at something, which is, you know, that's what we do with schools right now. How much is that working out? Like how much money are we thrown into the inner cities, into schools and and for what? Like we can't just throw. And I think, like you said about no competition, that's a huge part of it. And I think yeah. in, in terms of the you know market forces compared to to government control of uh, various industries, yeah, that's a, that's a huge part. Yeah, and it's just we you know we we need that. We need people to be be out there, and you know, you know, if if I was going to like come up with a slogan for for like combining praxeology and, and Christianity, it'd be like, be a student and be a servant, like be open-minded, be, be, be going through the world humble with that, 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 that like what Christ called like that, that childlike attitude. Cause you know, Jesus said that the kingdom kingdom of God belongs to, to, to um, those such as 
these as the children, you know, so, so we need to approach life with that, that humbleness to, to not think that we know what's best for everyone. We need to just, you know, we need to decide what's best for us and run our lives. And then if we want to do things out in the world, we need to, to be doing it as a servant to what Jesus says. And I, I think that's just, I think that is, a, you know, a very biblical way of looking at the, the, both the praxeological and the libertarian worldviews and, 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 and the explanations for why our world is going through the, uh, you know, the, the trials that it is now. And I don't think that a lot of people realize the connection, too, between giving the state the power of welfare and the power over our currency. And like, because let's be honest, none of these programs can be funded through the, the mechanisms that, of taxation alone. And they waste all this money. And then, but, but then what they really do, the, the thing that they really care about, you brought this up, was the expansion of the, the centralized banking system and the Federal Reserve. And people often will be like, you know, why are libertarians so, like, so many of them saying end the Fed? Like, why is that such like a big deal? And I'm like, because how do you think that they do all this stuff that they do? Like, how do you think they're able to wage all these wars? How do you think yeah. they're able to, to, to and, and, and that's my problem is that when you give the state you give these strong men this power to do all the good things you want them to do and then naively trust that they're not going to abuse it. It just blows my mind. Yeah. Like, it, you know, well, I think, you know, and this work. is where, yeah. And I think, um, you know, to the argument that, you know, the, to the efficiency of the market, um, there's also, uh, uh, you know, a collection of arguments that I find more and more compelling and, and useful I think in terms of advocating for political change and then being able to respond to the, well, what about, you know, the big powerful corporation or private business that comes in and, and crushes people and oppresses them. And I think that there are some like, you know, left-wing market anarchist ideas that are really focused on the opposition to hierarchy and essentially uh, like a trade policy that creates governance but that is really run by consumers. And so in, in what I am trying to describe there is like, if the argument is something like, um, you know, like if it wasn't for government trade policy, then people would just buy all the stuff from China and we'd be supporting, you know, the uh, atrocities in China otherwise, or we'd be, you know, supporting the uh, sweatshops and like that sort of stuff. And I think that because of government taking such a large role in arranging the economy, even though many people would consider it still a free market, the, the left-wing market anarchist lingo is to call it a freed market. We want to get the government out of the way. And I think that thinking about it in that sense of taking what is kind of free, but heavily regulated and controlled and manipulated um, and, and pushing it in that direction where we make the market argument, always focused on that idea that, okay, yes, there will still be problems. It's not that this is a panacea, but that government makes it worse every time. And I think the the focus on um, one of the things that you were saying, uh, there's something else that I wanted to respond to that you said earlier, but I kind of lost it. Um, well, but no, just yeah. If it, if it comes back to you, let me know. Um, but yeah, but yeah it, it, it's funny you bring that up. I, I'm actually interviewing a, uh, a libertarian socialist uh, this weekend. I don't know if you know him, Kevin Shaw. Um, 
Uh, but uh, he's been the, he's been in the Libertarian Party a while, uh, mm-hmm. involved in, mm-hmm. in stuff. But yeah, uh, th- there are a lot of things about like the, the the Libertarian Socialism and 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 left like the mutualist anarchist, uh, you know, thought that I can appreciate, and I can appreciate how. Uh, you know, they don't like unjust hierarchy. They, they, they want, they want more, uh, you know, what what they view as like not coercive markets. They want markets that are more like democratic. It's like their big thing. And it's like, listen, I don't have any problem with. I think decentralized is a bigger part of it than, than democratic. A lot lot uh, of them will, a lot of them will be like, well, well, a lot of the ones I talked to at least use the word democratic, but I think what they, I think what a, a more better answer would be that we want decentralized markets. And I think that they, you know, you can have democratic in, in the sense of like, you can have worker co-ops, you can have institutions in the market that run themselves democratically instead of like one person in charge of 500 employees. Like I'm not, I, I have no problem with that. Um, you know, the, the, the only the only divide I see between the economic left and the economic right in the libertarian anarchist sense is just that, uh, you know, there's there's some intolerance on both sides where you got some people on the the <laughs> the economic right saying throw <laughs> throw communist and socialist out of helicopters, and then you got you know some on the the left like the tankies saying um, we need to uh, with force you know take. Uh, take out the capitalist scum and prevent yeah, people the, the from expropriation. From, yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, all that so stuff. if we uh, if well, we yeah. if we if we we push those people to the side, I feel like the uh, the you know the I don't have much of an issue with the uh, the, the left anarchists that you know if they're not advocating for that, it's like you know I mean I think a truly decentralized uh, anarchic market is going to organize in a lot of diverse ways and probably different industries and different areas are just, you know, they're going to try different things and and that's great. And, you know, that's part of competition. That's part of, you know, to me, that's all part of Austrian economics. It's like, it's not, it's not a, it, it's, there's nothing wrong with collective uh, organization if it's done voluntarily through the market. I mean, that's, that is, that is definitely part of, of human action. That's what, I mean, you could say that's what the Mises caucus is doing. They're, you know, we're trying to collectivize uh, a lot of similarly minded, you know, libertarians to accomplish goals, you know, not so much in the market, but, but, but kind of, I mean, there's a little bit of overlap there. Like we're engaged people in the marketplace and then trying to get them into the political sphere. But I mean, you know, it's the same concept. I mean, it's, it's, um, but, but it has to be, you know, just, just has to be reducible down to individual consent. Yes. Voluntarism. Right. Yes, exactly. That's, that's, and I think, you know, to what you were talking about before about how the, you know, people with empathy, especially on the left. Um, and one of the things I brought up the last time we talked was my thought that we can see that the different motivation of the left and the right in the tension of like the pathos versus the ethos rhetoric where the right is trying to conserve the authority and the hierarchy of the constitution, whereas the left wants to help the people that are hurting. Uh, The problem is that the left gets it confused in the sense that when it tries to help people by building a more powerful hierarchy that puts people above others inherently in an oppressive relationship because there isn't that protection of consent, right? That that's where 
it becomes, you know, the abusive and, and pathological in that, that same way. So um, trying to, you know, I think trying to, I guess it depends on, on the people that you're talking to, but trying to make the argument that, you know, instead of advocating for Medicare for all, you should go out and help people. I think that's really kind of having two different conversations that I think if someone's advocating for a certain political policy, you want to try to engage like on that policy and why you have a different perspective on, and, and like to, to start with, we share the same goals, but here's why I think your policy is evil or, you know, some nicer version of that. Right. And, and so, because there are yeah, a lot yeah, of different yeah. reasons why we could describe why, you know, federal control of individual healthcare decisions is a bad idea. And so trying to find, you know, what are people maybe more sensitive to if someone has had, you know, uh, someone that they know who has had, you know, problems uh, or, you know, criminal problems from the drug war. Okay, well, that's a form of universal health care. The government decides, you know, what substances you're allowed to put into your body. That's that's a form of health care that they're denying people or they're, you know, uh, you know, providing to people, really. Think about it. That, that was their argument. They need to protect people from the bad drugs. That's health care, right? I mean, and, and so trying to, to reframe the way that they imagine government services to be provided uh, is a challenge. It's not something that is is seems to be uh, going well in so many ways. And that's where I think instead of trying to figure out issues where people are passionate, figure out what are the areas where they actually hate the government and they notice that the government is hurting people, you know, catch people on the way out of the DMV saying, yeah, don't you hate the government or, you know, in other situations, maybe after tax day, uh, which. Right. Yeah. I think, I think what you have but, to do is you, you have to show people the evil of the state and you might have to do that by first talking to them about the things where they most notice the abuse of power of the state. And then you have to, yeah, like you said, have the conversations about the things that they really care about and want, why they think we need the state and, and to just start having those conversations to be like, well, let's examine this step by step and let's see how effective this is. And let's see what, you know, sh show them that the, a, the inefficiency of it and how it, it doesn't provide both, you know, even if it, because sometimes it might work short term. And I think a lot of the time, the problem is they just, they look at the short term and then, and then like the danger of like the Keynesian economic systems that the West uses is that like through, uh, you know, the ability to print money, you can really, you know, prolong the costs of these things for a very long time and create these bubbles and then do all these economic resets and stuff. And it's like, it, and, and that I don't know, you know, a clear cut way to get people to see that for what it is. I mean, it was hard for me to see that for what it was. And I was, I mean, I was very like I, my history teacher practically brainwashed um, us in our AP history. Like I took AP history, like in my junior year. Um, and, 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 he practically brainwashed our class in Keynesian economics. Like, so it was like, it wasn't just like I was taught like just the typical how, you know, how the new deal was great and, and, and stuff like, I mean, he, it was like a borderline, like when people talk about public school being like public indoctrination camps, like I don't just use that term in a tongue in cheek, tongue in cheek, hyperbolic fashion. Like I really do think for a lot of teachers, that's how they view it. Like they, whether it's consciously, implicitly or, or not, like they, they indoctrinate their worldview on students. And I was indoctrinated yeah. in that. Well, they very, try to. 
but yeah. not even and i don't even think in a, in a in at least in many cases my guess would be that it's not in any malicious way um and no, i, I would guess I also that many yeah. of them are very ineffective i had very you know liberal teachers i wrote my big senior essay on how great ronald reagan was just to kind of mess with the lady who was you know had to grade it and and then i mean and also because that's what i thought i thought reagan you know saved the country from the cold war because what it took actually was spending a shitload of money on the military that's what did it. and obviously that's not true and i've learned that now but at the time I, that was the argument that i had consumed and i thought it was more compelling than the argument that you know whatever lbj great society was super helpful and the new deal was so great and the russians were you know it was just communism didn't you know, work the way it was written so nicely on the paper kind of <laughs> stuff you know I think, right <laughs> yeah um yeah, there's definitely what, ways that you can, yeah. especially like in, in a history setting, there's there's definitely ways to teach American history in a way that plays at people's emotions and that and that constructs a very like like ass backwards narrative. And I mean, I was, you know, right. like heavy focus on the terrors of, of the Gilded Age and the free market combined with the savior of FDR and the Great New Deal and Keynesian economics, like you know, I took that all the way to 2015 and it, 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 wow. it, it, yeah. it, it was, it was hard for me to, to see the failures of, of, of that system for what it was and, and, well, think, and, and to, you know, and to be shown that. And I think, I think to, to that problem in the world, the greatest hero in our society is Tom Woods. That yes. man has written so much on it. That homeschool curriculum is so good. And I'm not that I've, I've seen all of it, but I, I've seen some of it in the Liberty classroom. It's just like this wealth of knowledge and maybe some of it is even over libertarianized i i don't know uh, but it's because the way that he writes it is so factual and it's not like you know it's all so documented and everything that he produces it always has that like you know clear cut these are historical almost indisputable if not like you know just clearly laid out arguments and and timelines of all the details that you don't know and that you didn't, you know, that you didn't learn in school for damn sure. And that's what the book's always the uh, politically incorrect guide to capitalism and the politically incorrect guide to American history. Um, maybe capitalism was written by Bob Murphy. I'm not sure. But yeah, Tom, I, I was... think Tom wrote two of those books, and like they're wonderful, and they're available for free on Audible. Right. If you have the audio book. I mean, like if, if you have the Audible subscription, which is a wonderful service from a giant corporation, but whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but I, I just think like the, there is so much alternative content out there now and, you know, optimistic about the counterculture being so disgusted by all of the woke social justice nonsense that people are putting out now um, that I think there's going to be a lot of young people and people across the board that are just like, man, these people are wackos and like they, they judge people based on their skin color in this crazy self-righteous way. And I don't want to have any part of that. I think that's stupid. And that does not jive with my experience in my life. Um, so I think people are being more and more turned away. At least I, I hope so. I'm optimistic. It seems like that's happening from my whatever perspective. Um, but obviously, a, you know, there's a long way to go. And obviously those ideas are also gaining traction in many circles. So that's a good segue to um, the, the other thing we wanted to talk about, which is, yeah, is. Uh, all the... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the the the, the uh, SJW wokeism that you see on social media, and you know, like like I don't know where this fits into praxeology. Like th this is something that weighs heavy on my heart from a Christian perspective, and I don't know, I don't know what what, what your reaction to it would be. 
one of the hardest passages in the Bible is whether whether one of the hardest messages, and it comes from like two passages, is it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's also in Romans twelve, uh, and it's the message of loving your enemies, and and um, like like the first one on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "You've heard it say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, um, but I tell you now that if someone strikes you." Um, you know, on your cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And if someone asks you to walk a mile with them, walk an extra mile. And if, uh, you know, and in, in Romans 12, it, uh, Paul echoes the same message, says that uh, bless those who persecute you. And uh, to, 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 you know, just the message of, of loving our enemies. And like, I think what Paul says is like, don't even, you know, the Gentiles, even, even the Gentiles and the godless love their friends. Um, but but we should we should be better than that. We should love even the people who hate us, and that was even more especially like radical for Paul to say, you know, then considering like they were dealing with hatred that was more than just like people calling them names on social media. They were being stoned in public by <laughs> people who legitimately hated them and and wanted to kill the the, the early church. So. Um, you know, th those are like as a Christian, like you know, like I hear those, those, I, I see those things written down. I, I, I want to take them a heart. I want to. I mean, that's what Jesus did. Jesus did that on the cross. Like he was on the cross being killed, and he said, "Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do." Like, you know, which like <laughs> I don't think any of us could have like the the ability to love on people that are hating us to that degree to be like as you're being killed to just like look down at people and be like forgive them and and th that is part of what motivates me in my interactions with a lot of the stuff that we see on on social media and as much as like i can like I, like i'm the first one to blast statism um but i'm i'm very hesitant to to blast people and i, I try to give people a lot of patience and to 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 do my best to interact with people in good faith, even if they are interacting with me in bad faith. Um, so uh, guess, bef yeah. before we get into any specifics, like what do you think of that in like a praxeological sense, as far as like loving your enemies and uh, you know, what, 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 you know, what, what that, how that comes into play. Um, all right. So I, I guess my, uh, the, the, it starts with the pursuit of self-interest, right? Mm -hmm. To me, like recognizing that everything we do is in the pursuit of self-interest, you benefit from learning from your enemies. You know, the, the art of war, uh, everything in there, that, that sent the sentiment about under the better you understand your enemy, the more successful you will be. So loving your enemy means getting to know them means having their best interests at heart. So having to try to have a productive conversation with someone who disagrees with you or has a view that, um, you know, that would harm you is, is certainly a noble goal, right? Like I, I think absolutely trying to bring enemies, uh, towards having a, uh, well, I guess, I guess one part of this as well is that there's an element of love and, you know, whether it's the, uh, phileo or the, the brotherly love kind where just simply engaging in mutually beneficial trade could be considered an act of love. And if you're in, if you're loving your enemies in a mutually beneficial, you know, exchange, then you're, you know, you're meeting that accomplish uh, that that task. But also, 
it's not love your enemies at the expense of yourself. It's love your enemies because that's the best thing for you also. And you know, one of the Jordan Peterson rules is that I never get any of his rules exactly right, <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, it's like, uh, uh, assume that the person you're talking to has something worth learning or that right. they know something yeah. that you could benefit from basically right. is, is the sentiment. And so I, I think that that idea right there, uh, along with the idea of um, seeing yourself as a humble and curious student, right? I think like that's the, 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 a lot of the stuff that Jesus says about be like a child, like that's what he's talking about. At least that's, that's the way I, I see it is that you're pursuing learning in the same way that a child does, you just inherently naturally has to automatically, you know, just perceive the world around them and learn from it. Um, that, that that's the benefit of loving your enemies compared to in the same way that I, I, uh, I mentioned, I'm sure I don't remember exactly what I said, but I've said this kind of thing before where, you know, by being offended by what somebody else says, you're losing, you're, you're, you know, not benefiting from having a more productive conversation, or you're just, you know, manufacturing your own negative emotion. And I, I don't know if I said this last time, but one of the examples I think is you know, like a bit silly, but it's like, you know, if a five-year-old calls you a doo-doo head, right? You don't like, oh, not my head is not made of doo-doo. That's mean. You know, like that doesn't get under your skin. That doesn't bother you. That's just like a little kid making an insult. And I think like, that's the way that, you know, I uh, think of all insults. Like I, I mean, yeah, I, other than my dog, when he's well, really bad, he gets under my skin a little bit because he can be a real little troublemaker and he knows better. Right. But like for the most part, any person like does not, you know, make me mad in that way like i'll be sad for them and and just as one little little extra detail here um in, in the loving your enemy sense uh camille foster talked about this a while ago and he talks about lots of race issues at times um but there was a discussion about uh they were talking about like poor people in alabama and mississippi who are you know like old white racists or something right and camille's message was like i feel sorry for those people those people are confused and ignorant and I, I pity them. Right. And I think that that idea of like, I pity the fool, right. Kind of thing, right. There's tons of Bible verses too, that tell you what to do with a fool and fools are about, you know, spouting their own ideas. They're not pursuing understanding. And so I think if you realize, okay, I'm messing with a fool, I don't hate them. I don't really love them, but maybe I could benefit from, you know, seeing their foolishness, learning how to become less foolish myself. And just always viewing it through that lens of, of pursuit of self-interest, not in like a, in a negatively greedy or selfish way, but just in a descriptive way of like everything that we do, we, it, it will end up impacting our future interests, right? It, it, you know, our, our actions impact, have consequences in that sense, right? So I think treating, you know, trying to take an assessment of whether someone is worthwhile to have a discussion with whether there's any benefit either for you to improve your communication or potentially to change their mind and, and to, to you know, have the, the satisfaction of, of serving them in a sense of clearing up their ignorance. Um, you know, the, the Buddhist concept of evil has nothing to do with like some inner conscience or something. It's just ignorance. It's just not recognizing that being honest and good is right. better. Than you know, there's a evil. there's a Christian parallel to that, which like I, you said that in the last conversation, and I was uh -huh. I was re-listening to it. Things. Uh -huh. I was re-listening to it last week, and and I realized there's a Christian parallel to that, which is yeah. um, sin separates you from God, which is which is basically the same thing. Sure. Like God is truth. Like Jesus is the logos. 
And when when you sin, and it says the Bible says like sin, the problem with sin, the Bible says, is that it's it it cuts you off from God. And I think that's basically the same thing, which is like, you know, uh evil or like wrongdoing is is in a way a form of of ignorance. Um, I think that is true. Um that's an interesting way of looking at loving your enemy. It, it, there is like a dichotomy in the Christian world as far as like, do you love your enemy to the point of spiting yourself? Because, you know, the apostles did that and Jesus did that. And, and it does seem to be like a little uh, bit. Of, so there, the, that is like this an is, ongoing I, I would disagree vibe. with that, though. That, that, well, not, not that I disagree with the way you said it, but that okay. the, in the praxeological sense, right, that they did not do anything to intentionally harm themselves. They thought what their actions were, and, and obviously because they acted in the way that they did, that what they were doing was in the best interest. It was uh, you know, in pursuit of their ends, right? And maybe it was in a, in a short term, in a, in, a, um, in a fleshly sense or whatever, uh, that, that it was costly, that it was sacrificial. But in the sense of like what the the praxis of logos, right? Like if you see yourself as my human action is about Jesus in the, in the Christian praxeological sense, that's what I think of it as, right? That you realize that you're using yourself as a means is inherently sacrificial because it's actually better to live in that way. And that's that, that James 125, where it says the perfect right. law that brings liberty. It's like when you kind of submit to that self and, and not that this is anything that I'm necessarily good at, just in a philosophical sense, right? Like in terms of how we can think about our action, how we can, you know, view our enemies or our goals or how we see ourselves most of all, right? Is we are a means, we will are, you know, have, uh, dust in the wind or whatever. All of the things that they say about the temporary nature of life, the stuff from Ecclesiastes, you know, a lot of that. It, it, when you realize that it's not like a, a, a depressing thing, it's an empowering thing to take that burden away and, and think about it in a more, uh, just in a, in a simplified sense. And also to me, at least in a more accurate sense of really what the nature of our existence is. And then with that understanding or with that like approach, then it guides us in terms of how we operate and cooperate. Yeah, that, that, that is a really, like that, what you just said, as far as like, they, it was sacrificial in like a short-term sense, but it wasn't in terms of what their self-interest was and what they were trying to do. I think that's a really, like, like that is really striking to me because it kind of helps fills in the gap in my understanding of how I've always viewed those passages because one of the debates in the Christian world is like if these passages teach pacifism or not. And my gut intuition has always been if a random stranger is committing violence against you for not like just like you're going through your life and, and like they're they're trying to take something from you, you have a right to defend yourself. But if in the act of service to God, like being an apostle, going out there preaching the word, the word, or, or doing good, it, like you're doing good in the face of evil. If you fall under persecution, that you should continue to do to 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 do good, to follow Christ, even to the point of death. And that it's not about it's not about condemning self defense, but it's about saying some things are worth, you know. That, that if your self-interest in them is so great and you view that calling that, you know, that, that, that ethos that's, that's calling you 
as great enough that that you will die for it and that that is what best serves uh your interests like does that does that make sense like i'm trying to put it in my own yeah my no own words. Uh, that's that's what i was trying to get yeah. at too right this is the part of the challenge we're dealing with like these these just deep philosophical ideas and trying to translate it into uh you know it's somebody praxeology and economic you know the economic science and i think um you know to uh you know one one little side note to that is uh bob murphy is a you know christian economist pacifist right and one of the things that struck me i was listening to him have a conversation with um a guy who wrote a book uh you'd really enjoy the interview i would guess um and the guy had a some degree in theology and wrote the book about uh you know like an anarchist christian perspective and how um there were examples all through the bible of you know like like slavery and taxes when the new king would come in or the the empire and it's all these different kings and like the discussion of power and and authority um but but bob's argument for pacifism uh to me like i think he makes he makes a great argument i've heard him you know kind of go through it in a couple different ways uh but I think that there's an argument from a different angle where depending on the type of aggression, right? Like if someone is like, if, if uh, you're in a situation where someone's bullying you and they're actually like causing you some physical harm, you try to talk about it, you try to look for other options, but there could be like, you could in the loving your enemy sense, hit them right in their mouth and teach them a lesson that could actually benefit them in the long run, right? Like you could easily make an argument that someone, you know, getting popped in the face and having a, you know, a, a quick correction that as a response to their poor behavior is in some sense loving them. And maybe in a, in a to take a, a slightly, uh, in a, from a different angle, right? In terms of um, not from a, a pacifist versus uh, like physically aggressive sort of, difference but in terms of like when it's your job to take control when do you have responsibility to take control of a situation and you can think of like restraining someone who's wasted from trying to you know get behind a car and drive or you could think of a parent trying to stop a child from doing something that could be you know very harmful to them so there are times when you have to you know put yourself out there and act in the world in a way that you know, could violate our simple, our, our oversimplified version of like the non-aggression principle, um, where you are, you know, you know, confiscating the agency from someone else who is either incapable or has, you know, could could benefit from a lesson. So I think like there's there's a lot of different angles to it, um, and I think that there's a similar sort of argument where if people are, you know, making terrible arguments and they're saying lots of bad things. That trying to engage with them in a more like stern, uh, you know, harsh method or like really condemn like like what we should with the lockdowns, right? Like people are doing really bad things. We should speak out aggressively against that. Uh, that that it fits the same model of like where how we should act in the right or wrong sort of you know how how we evaluate the morality of our action and the 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 uh, menu of choices that we potentially have in any moment in in terms of. Uh, you know, how we act. And one thing also in terms of the, when I was talking before, like with the the pursuit of self-interest, like Jesus was always in pursuit of his own self-interest, right? Like that's the way I look at it. And that's not the way that people usually think about self-interest as like a greedy thing. But I think also, yeah, but like just in that descriptive sense, um, it's, it's 
a better way of phrasing it is think of it as like we all have our own individual subjective value hierarchies. Like that's the way I look at it. We have our, our top values are the most important things that we need to accomplish. And the more basic things, the, the, the more that our basic needs are met, the more we're able to pursue those higher level opportunities. And I think that trying to bridge that gap of recognizing that, yeah, absolutely, people have basic needs when, when we're engaging in political discussion about, you know, like the sort of UBI type questions or the basic services provided by the state that are supposed to, you know, fill the basic needs of people, that we recognize that there are those basic needs, but there's also the, the most important fundamental inherent, and it's not even like a need, it's just like the nature of our existence is that we are agents and we act. And so like, you know, recognizing that each individual has that and has that capability and like treating people as though they're competent and capable rather than someone who needs to be treated as a prisoner or a subject in some other way, uh, you know, have everything provided to them. Um, that's a very condescending approach. And um, yeah, so I think trying to uh, apply the, the Jesus method or the Jesus approach. Um, yeah, like one of the things I probably said on your show last time too, is like Jesus, uh, you know, the meanest he ever was, was to the religiously self-righteous, you know, establishment. Right. Those are the people that he yelled at. And right. um, yeah, I think having that harsh reaction towards the most wrong people is is justified. So the, I yeah. guess the question was more about the physical violence versus pacifism. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it, yeah. And, and that could be almost a whole different video would be like going through the, the, the you know, relation of praxeology and pacifism versus, you know, non-pacifism, I guess. But it's you know that 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 is that is a very you know uh, internal ongoing debate in the Christian community, especially in the Christian anarchist and libertarian community. A lot of a lot of prominent Christian anarchists are pacifists, and um, like like uh, uh, Tolstoy was, uh, Bob Murphy is, uh, you know several others several other others are. Um, but but yeah, that could be. But that that that, that is an interesting uh, way of of putting it. And you know I think I think you know this is where like. Uh, an understanding of like Ayn Rand and objectivism comes into play. Like, I think they, they, you know, she made a really good argument about, about a uh, self-interest and how like that isn't like, you know, being selfish isn't something that is like a boogeyman, I guess that like we've been told, like, like don't, we're always told, like, told like growing up, like, don't be selfish. Like that, that person is mean and selfish. And like, there's just all these negative connotations added to those terms of selfish and self-interested and, 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 and they're not, they shouldn't be cast as these, uh, these, these negative, uh, things. I just, I don't think it's necessary. Um, I guess, I guess what we should talk about here then at the end with this framing that we discussed, you wanted to talk to me about my engagements with, uh, so I don't, I do a lot of engaging with people who are very anti, um, Mises caucus. And, uh, so this takes place on, on Facebook in like the, the fakeitarians discussion group. This also takes place on Twitter. Um, and you are watching in, in both instances, some of my interactions, um, with, with some, uh, probably some amusement and, uh, um, but, but also trying to, you wanted to talk, you, you talked to me privately and we, we thought we would talk about this a bit more here, um, at the end, just to kind of, you know, provide some, you know, some, some useful, you know, like I have, no, I have no problem with the word criticism. I think criticism is good. I think constructive criticism is good. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you have 
want to share your your criticisms of that and and your 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 uh, your your thoughts and feelings towards you know what I've been doing and whether it's a good use of my time and you know maybe I can then also try to explain my side and why I think it aligns in my self interests and you know just you know see where we end up but I think it's an interesting conversation because it to me it's kind of like me kind of trying to ride this this tension of like I'm, I'm part of this caucus now and there's a group of people that because of my association with it hate me and and slander me and they're slandering the caucus and we talked about this a bit last time even before I was in the caucus like I was like well what should the the caucuses and the leaders within the caucus what should the response be to this and a lot of it has been to uh you know, they're, they're like monetize the haters and they came up with the phrase loser brigade. And, and it, I don't know, like, it's just, that's not my style. Like my style is not to uh, meet fire with fire, so to speak. Like when people hate me, it's kind of like, all right, like let's sit down and talk and like, you know, sling your arrows at me. It's like, I, I want to yeah. figure out, you know, you know, I, I always want to try to be the bigger person and try to, uh, work towards reconciliation, even if I have every reason to believe that the other person doesn't. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's maybe I've spent too much time there. Maybe I haven't gone about it the best ways. Uh, what What are your thoughts? Um, well, I would say I I agree with all of your sentiment there. My only, uh, especially when you said you want to you know sit down and hash things out and talk and and you know, that, that type of thing. Totally agree. That, that's, that's all productive, good stuff. I, I, you know, I haven't read all of the stuff you post. And like I mentioned before, like I see, you know, you write something that sounds like thoughtful and you're curious and you ask a bunch of questions and they just say, you know, pretty harsh things to you and they call you an idiot and how you haven't like read stuff and why are you still here? Anyway, like all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, um, I would say my, my perspective on the utility of, of talking to especially libertarian-minded people with different perspectives is that, uh, like I mentioned, and um, I know you've interacted with him a little bit recently on Facebook too, but James Weeks, uh, the infamous, you know, naked guy from 2016, uh, he's the chair of my local party and I'm the vice chair, and he encouraged me to run for Congress. And when we first met, there is, uh, you know, a little bit of tension and stuff, but we had fun conversation. We sat there and, and for before COVID, and, you know, had a couple beers and had, you know, good, fun, you know, boisterous conversations. And now on, uh, on our video chat calls, the, you know, me and, and uh, the, the two um, more left-leaning, uh, somewhat infamous within the Libertarian Party, uh, Jeff and James, they, the three of us just all talk almost the whole time. We're just like all yelling at each other, but it's all in like good faith and banter. And it's like, and, and, you know, we talk about history and they're both, you know, you know, smart, intelligent, interesting characters um, with, and they disagree on some stuff sometimes too. And so to, like me, my process of uh, engaging with them has been immensely productive and fruitful. Like I found it very enjoyable. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, I engaged with a bunch of anarcho-communists on Twitter and ended up reading some Kropotkin. Um, that might've been the first time I ever read any Konkin stuff too. Maybe not, but either way, like I got into some interesting, you know, conversations, learned some stuff and my understanding of the other potential viewpoints changed. And it definitely had a big opinion uh, or had a big influence on my opinion that libertarian political rhetoric should attempt to be left wing almost always. 
it just in the sense, and, and we talked about this before, but in the sense of not trying to conserve like the good parts of the state, but trying to, uh, you know, help the people that are being oppressed to point towards the people who are suffering, to have empathy, to talk about the, the problem of the, you know, stagnant, corrupt hierarchy. Uh, and those are left-wing arguments. So I think my perception on that has changed from engaging in, in a somewhat um, spirited conversation to say the least, but I, I felt like it was productive when, well, I guess sometimes on Twitter, it was productive just because of, you know, links and, and kind of getting to know some people and engaging in some conversations. But um, more importantly with, uh, you know, in person, when you can talk and go back and forth and actually have a constructive conversation. Whereas with social media, so much of that gets lost in the, just in the lack of, you know, hearing someone's intonation with the way that they're speaking. You know, we really, going from the spoken word to the written word is a huge drop off in, uh, you know, the ability to understand what someone's trying to communicate. And that's something that I'm very like self-conscious about where a lot of times when I've written stuff, I hate the way that it sounds after I write it, even though I have, you know, generous kind intentions when I write it, it sounds, you know, snotty afterwards, or it doesn't communicate the, 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 uh, the tone that I'm, I'm trying to. So social media just makes it worse, especially when it's, you know, people assume that there's already like a combative, you know, disagreeable tone that they read things with even more disagreeable. And I've, you know, I've done the same thing. I've not, you know, tried to give someone the benefit of the doubt at times and, and thought that their arguments were, were just horrible. Um, but my only, my only contention for, for you, and I think I just, when I <laughs> messaged you, and we had talked about doing this before, and we just wanted to add this as a part of the conversation, but I was just curious about why, like, w- why you would do that for so long. And, um, you know, apparently like, they, they like you. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> I mean, I know you've gone on a podcast with some of those guys and I, like I said, I, I've seen some entertaining uh, stuff from them and that I was, was brutal. Really? <laughs> I was I, not I like like I didn't complain about it, but uh-huh. I wasn't expecting there to be like five of them. <laughs> like I thought it was yeah. gonna be like me and Hudak and like usually Hudak has like a host, like a co-host. Uh-huh. It's like I was expecting like two people. I got oh, on right. it was like a yeah. panel of like five or six people. Uh-huh. I was like, uh okay. what did I walk into? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean and and like if it's all in good faith, right? And if it's people trying to sort out problems and offer solutions and have interesting conversation, then that's totally different. That's like a totally different sector of like potential interaction and cooperation, right? right? But then there's the other side of it where it's like people are just trying to, you know, live in their echo chambers and and not be curious. And I think, yeah, I, I just, I like a lot of libertarians. Right. And I've enjoyed some of the fakertarian stuff that I've seen over the whatever past months. And, you know, like I'm sure a lot of those people are, are, you know, good libertarians that have different perspectives. The hatred of the Mises caucus is just a form of whatever intolerance or, you know, judgmentalism. It's not, you know, based in any sort of real thing. And for whatever extent that it is, right, like, like one of the things that you may want to talk about is a specific question around the, the Hotep Jesus character. Right. And that, that you've been interested in and, and trying to, you know, kind of navigate and, and be like a, a moderate voice for. And to me, like the question about him being a part of the Libertarian Party or him being a part of Mises Caucus is like anybody who says what he says about the state and the duopoly is clearly on our team. And if we're trying to be like, not like a third party, a fringe group, but like the third party, where it's like those two and then us, 
then someone like him needs to be welcomed, you know, warmly in the same way that, you know, the anarcho-communists should be in the same way that, you know, anybody who thinks Joe Biden is a war criminal, come on into our team. Maybe we disagree on some economics, but if you think that the politicians in Washington, D.C. should have way less power, then the Libertarian Party should be a home for those people. Like, I think to me, like, it, it, it could be that simple. If you oppose federal government violence, you're, I'm, I'm good with it. And like, and you recognize, yeah, I think it's that simple. I, I, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. I'm in a weird place where like my goals and my values very closely align with the Mises caucus, but I'm able to empathize and understand through conversations why people have a negative opinion of, of Mises. And, and it's tough because I, I see a lot of bad conversations that have happened and, and drama that have happened over time. And the problem is like, I'm coming in kind of like after the fact, like after the, after the volcano has erupted, after the, the no, bombs but, have dropped yeah. and, 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 and it, there's no perfect way to go about it. Uh, and, and it probably would be better to do things more in person, although it's, or, or face to face like this, but it's just, that's, that's harder to set up, harder to convince people to do. And, uh, a lot of this stuff happens over social media and I try to pick and choose my, my interactions as I can. I've definitely not always done as good of a job as I can at, uh, taking time to reflect on what I say before I say it. And, you know, I've, I've had times where I think, you know, if I said things in groups that didn't have a negative opinion of Mises, they would have been taken fine. But when I said them in these groups, they were just taken the wrong way. And, and, and people became very, you know, certain people became very angry with me. But there's also a lot of people I've built good connections with, um, like, uh, you know, I've been able to build a good a good connection with with Hudak, uh, with 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 Jeremy. Um, I'm reaching out to Kevin Shaw, talking to him on Sunday. There's another person who I won't mention by name because I don't know if he wants to be named, but he reached out and talked to me privately and said, "Listen, like I think maybe you said some things in a way that got taken the wrong way, but like I can tell you're trying to come at this from a good perspective and a good position. I don't think you're a bad person. I have, like, he has a lot of problems with the Mises caucus. Like he thinks the caucus is, is, is bad, is promoting entryism, is, is, you know, doing all these things, but he was like, so what does that mean? What does that mean? Promoting entryism. And is that something you find concerning? Um, so, so this, um, this was like an argument that, Dave Smith had with uh, a debate he had with Archie Manning, who I think is the state. Archie Flower. Flower. Archie Flower. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of, uh, of um, uh, he's the state chair of Vermont, I believe, um, or, 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 or a, or a county chair in Vermont. And I don't know, Vermont might not be very big. It might only have one county. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, so people are saying the Mises caucus is promoting entryism and then like we are, curtailing our message to appeal to the right and specifically alt-right, you know, kind of fringe right types uh, and racists and bigots and to bring them into the party. And they, they also have described it as like the, what they call the paleo strategy, which they say historically has been tried in the party before by like, sure. um, you know, Murray Rothbard. Yeah, yes. like, yeah, late, yeah, late Rothbard Rothbard. Part of that, yeah. 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 So that's what they think 
we are doing. And uh, Hotep kind of like, you know, plays at that a little bit because he, you know, he has said he's some a, things. Paleo? Okay, okay, oh, yeah, yeah okay. He, he, Because he has, not, not because he's a paleo, but because he has yeah, said yeah. things I that are, it. that yes. are, I mean, and, and I'll be honest, you know, and I'm not trying to be overly sensitive here. I am a Jew who, I mean, I'm a religious Christian, but like ethnically Jewish who grew up next to next door neighbors that were actually like the father was an ex-Klansman, had like a Nazi tattoo and the son was raised in that environment. And when he found out I was Jewish, bullied me pretty relentlessly for a couple of years. Um, and it was sad because like we weren't friends, but like he was literally friendly with me up until the point he found out I was Jewish. And then it was like turned on a dime and was just vile and racist towards me. Um, so it was, you know, that was, that was, yeah. So I'm, I'm not, so like I've experienced blatant anti-Semitism before. Um, so I don't like a lot of the things that Hotep says. I think that a lot of those things are, uh, you could describe as, as problematic and especially, I understand why some libertarians would be hesitant for a guy like Hotep to be involved in the party or associated with the philosophy. Like, no one wants someone who says things like the Holocaust didn't happen with, to, to, yeah, to, to I, be associated with, with libertarianism. Sure. But, but, At the same uh, time, yeah, yeah, I definitely uh, hear what you're saying, which is like, I like that he's an anarchist. I my, like that he's quoting Rothbard. Yeah. I love that stuff. My and, argument and is, to me, is simpler than that, though, like because yeah. I agree. But it's 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 really just the simple fact that, like, the only way to win in politics is to build broad coalitions. Mm -hmm. So if he thinks that, like, I mean, just whatever, if he thinks the Holocaust is kind of fake or he has other like, you know, bad views, but he also doesn't want like the big political power to like he doesn't want to have perpetual wars. And he doesn't want to have, you know, government run health care. And he has clarified you know, in a he's yeah. had multiple conversations with David Smith. He's clarified that. Um, oh, yeah, I he heard. Views, those. Yeah, yeah, he, he yeah. views people. He treats people as individuals. He doesn't advocate for any kind of violence. So it's like it's not that I'm I'm not sitting here triggered at Hotep, but I can understand why some people are uneasy with it. And I guess and I, I, what I'm I saying don't, is more than like instead of being like a social club, right, where it's like this person is going to impact our brand because he has a platform and he's going to be a part of our team. We're a political movement. There are going to mm -hmm. be people who agree with our ideas or some of our ideas, but not all of them. And they don't represent the whole group. Right. And it's almost like the, the keep no record of wrongs kind of thing in terms of like that's one of the things of love that love does is keep mm -hmm. no regular wrongs that's a way to think of both friends and enemies right it's not focused on whatever and, and it's not to even minimize or, or in any way like say that anything bad that people say doesn't matter right like it's just it's like to me at least it's a different question and it's simply about the fact of like the it's almost a, to, to a different angle is like all pr is good pr kind of thing where just like someone like him bringing attention to the Mises caucus or the libertarian party is great a lot of people have no idea what it is and so if they hear some of his message and they're like yeah he has some weird ideas and the the thing that that always gets me about the the entryist argument like even that word right that mm -hmm. that assumes that the bad ideas will win like that's right. what that's the only reason that that's a compelling argument is that is is a fearful argument i guess Entryism inherently is a fearful argument that the stupid ideas will beat 
the good ideas, right. the consistent and, 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 ideas. And this is where and my, to hear, yeah, yeah, this is where I diverge because while I can see why people could have concerns, there's a difference to me between having concerns and being a just offended, which I, I don't operate that way. Like I don't see things and go, oh, that's like, like, well, that's just offensive and racist and you don't like, you just shouldn't be here. You shouldn't talk. You shouldn't like, I don't view that as helpful or productive because like, I just think it's just a reality of life that like, there are going to be some people that have racist and bigoted or wrong ideas. And they're still people like they are to me. It's like, I treat them with love and compassion and respect the same way I treat statists, like, like someone who, you know, even if there's like, like a boomer con who is advocating for why the war in Yemen is good. Like I, you know, I would even try to try to treat that person with respect, but then I compare someone like, you know, like Bill Weld or like a, a bad libertarian who like has literally helped to, uh, push the wars and stuff and, and to push these, these awful things the state has done. And I contrast that with someone like Hotep who was like, he said some things I don't really like or agree with, but has he done anything to actually commit violence or advocate for violence? So like, I, I can appreciate the nuance in, in these things. And I don't act offended by, by the association association with Hotep, but, but the, the but the, I've been a little bit of vocal about it because there's been plenty of people within the Mises caucus who themselves just kind of spoke up and said, uh, yeah, I'm not exactly about that. And kind of like, you know, like caught off guard with how quickly, like, you know, things kind of escalated with Hotep going, coming on Dave's show. And then, you know, now we're hosting him in a California event and people were like, uh, okay, like it was just kind of like caught people by surprise, and people are asking questions about that. And I'm saying there's nothing wrong with libertarians of any stripe and color, both in the caucus and out in the caucus, kind of being a little, you know, having some whiplash from you know or concerns about Hotep. I think that there are good answers for those, and we should engage in those conversations and provide people with with those good answers. Um, some people are going to be more open to those answers than, than others. I don't envision people in the vegetarian circles being okay with Hotep anytime soon. Like they're, they're going yeah, to continue to sure. be extremely I, upset yeah. by it. And that's just because they're engaged in and this. They'll post, yeah. They're, they're post the screenshots from like 2012 or 2015. Right. Or and it's like, and, and, that's and, fine. It, and it's, I mean, and it's, it's like, whatever, listen, someone's like, got to be the historian. Yeah. And, and it's, listen, it's like, it's just, I get what they're coming from, but I just, I don't operate in the, the, I'm very much like what you said, like being offended to me just isn't helpful. Like, all right, like I'm offended. I'm going to sit here and, and call this racist and, and bigoted and okay, cool. Now what? Like, well, it's that a doesn't... form of social capital, right? Like the, the benefit of it is in, in terms of uh, internally and, you know, like the mental health side of it, it's, it's bad. It's a form of just manufacturing negative emotion and the consequences of, you know, just, it just like literally is, uh like the um what's the phrase uh cognitive behavioral therapy is like the opposite of nurturing uh offenses right it's about overcoming your trauma and seeing yourself as stronger and, and realizing that you are capable of more than right. what you thought before right so i think in that sense the whole like being offended by stuff is is kind of productive for yourself but at the same time externally and as a form of social capital people can make these claims 
and other people support them in their, you know, claim of victimhood or, or however you'd prefer to phrase that in a more, you know, generous way. But like, I think that tension and that, that motivation is something that, um, I, I, at least on some level, there's more and more of that, I think, on the, the right wing in terms of like the more mainstream conservative types. They're all like ready to cry over Dr. Seuss was the thing last week, the week before it was um, something else. Mr. But like they Head. make a big deal. Oh, yes, exactly. Yes. The <laughs> week before it was Mr. Potato Head. A couple months ago it was Aunt Jemima. But it's like they make a big deal out of it because it's like their it's their attempt to play the culture war. I think like the social capital, the the battle between social capital is the culture war. Right, and that's the that thing. Sense, like I wasn't, like, I wasn't play, offended by yeah. that stuff either. I was just sure. like, okay, but look, I think whatever. This stuff, this yeah. stuff, literally. And like, I like what you said. Like, are we? I think it is a fear thing too. Like, people are afraid for some reason that like we can't win this battle of ideas. Like sure. to me, I I like the idea that someone who has libertarian leanings and sympathies coming into the caucus, coming into the party, coming into the movement. And if they have bad ideas, engage them in those bad ideas, like win the battle of ideas with them. You don't win the battle of ideas. You don't change the culture by like clutching your pearls and being offended because people have bad ideas. Like that doesn't, that doesn't help the problem. And like, do I view Hotep's views as problematic to a point? Like, Sure, but okay, they're problematic. Do, do, does do, do if if clutching our pearls and being offended at racism was going to end racism, like you know, like I don't see any evidence for that. Like racism still exists, even while we have a giant, massive media structure that is extremely, uh, you know, like loud about how anti-racist they are. If anything, I think it creates the opposite effect. It almost, in, it almost yep. emboldens a counter-identity politics where people become like, well, they're so upset because we're right and they're trying to silence us and it, it creates oh, this reactionary I, stuff. Yeah. And, and it's well, like- I think, But also on the other side of it, it also, it promotes the, the claims of racism and it promotes like the, the shutting down of any of discussion and, you know, on a more extreme level, it promotes the kind of stuff that the whole uh, Jesse Smollett guy did, right? Like, it, it, it presents this incentive to become a victim of this societal problem. And, and to me, like, like uh, the biggest examples of systemic racism are, you know, explicit public policies that disproportionately impact people of different demographic groups. And there are obvious examples, but that's never what's talked about as systemic racism in the broader conversation. It's right. so much more about like, it, there, no one's it's saying just, social security is an obvious example of systemic racism. I had, this exact, I had yeah. this exact conversation and, with the Fakertarians when I was on their podcast, because they were like, well, Heiss is saying on Facebook that systemic racism doesn't exist. And I was like, well, well, Heiss is talking about systemic racism, like what Black Lives Matter and the uh, the Democratic left right now are talking about. And the way the left talks about systemic racism, I kind of agree that it largely doesn't exist because they just kind of look sure. at any disparity, like like look at all these disparities. That's racist. Look at yeah. you know what I mean, like and and oh well, blacks are a minority. It's like the post-structuralist yeah. argument where it's like, well, there's the world is just competing groups of power and blacks are in the minority. We live in a, we live in a, a country in a system and a culture of white supremacy. And I'm like, yeah, well, that, that's nonsense. Like, yeah, but, I, but, I but, but, but libertarians really make libertarians make beautiful, well-reasoned 
legitimately and legitimate and evidenced arguments for like you know actual examples of systemic racism I'll tell you the biggest one gun control gun control was one oh, of the yeah. biggest yeah. forms of systemic racism and sexism in our in, in our uh in, in our culture sure um but but no one wants to talk about that yeah. um you know anti-poor people yeah right and no, I, I guarantee it's, it's, i guarantee yeah. if i had heiss on here and said is that systemic racism he'd go yeah like well, sure so i it, think yeah I, I defining the terms is always a challenge especially right. when you're dealing with people from different perspectives who use these terms in different ways um but and so yeah it makes it very difficult if we're trying to translate what they say into our lingo and you know it gets lost in translation. Yeah. But I think uh, you know the idea that that um, what we need to do is talk about race more um, is so weird to me, and it's I, I find it so discouraging to think like like I remember when I was you know eighteen, nineteen, maybe twenty, twenty one, and stuff, and and playing basketball. That uh, like there are many, many times like like a lot of times when I see these you know white people talking about their privilege on Twitter and stuff or Facebook or whatever. And, and it's like these people that I just almost automatically assume that if they think that white people have all this power and white people are like privilege or power or however they prefer, they, they usually don't say white power. They say white supremacy or their own white privilege. But to me, like all they're doing is describing that their view is that white people have power and people of color, which is a very strange phrase that I, I think will die in the next few years. I'm very optimistic about that too. It's such a, a, a just toxic and weird phrase that never existed before because there's no need for it. Like this idea of the the dividing people into the whites and the rest of the, it, it's just very strange to me. But anyway, the, the idea that, um, that talking about race more makes racism go away uh, is so backwards to me. And I think treating people as individuals is the ultimate anti-racism. That's the anti-collectivist. Like racism is just a primitive form of collectivism. And America is so weird Absolutely. about race. And I think America is, in, in, from my perspective at least, it seems like it's an anomaly. Like European countries don't have this sort of weird like people of color versus the white people kind of paradigm that they talk about. And, and it's, it's, I mean, my, my, in my experience, like growing up around a lot of black people, I've been, you know, one white person on a basketball court with nine black dudes, you know, a bunch of times. And I remember when I was younger, it, like what I was going to say before is, you know, they at times they would say, you know, get, you know, guard red shorts or something. They wouldn't call me the white guy at times because it was kind of like cliche. You know, you don't really like you wouldn't talk about people just in terms of their skin color like that. And, I, you know, obviously I was it was obvious that I was the the white guy at times. And, you know, there are other times where. Uh, plenty of times where I was, you know, the minority on a basketball court. And I've been around a lot of black people. I've heard black people say some racist stuff before, for sure. I've heard lots of people, you know, say racist stuff. But just the idea that, like, we group these or like that, that the way that the societal discussion is going is becoming more and more just ridiculous. And, and it's tragic. And these people with these, I, the, to me, like, it's about anti-racialism. Make the racial component of it the smaller component. Treat people as individuals. And so the pro-racialists are all using the white privilege and people of color and all of those sorts of narratives. And like, to me, like there's true elements of any of their claims. Like to, to, to some degree, I would say anybody who makes those sorts of claims and, and paints the world, you know, in that sort of, uh, you know, tone that there's some validity to their claims because the government has been screwing with people for a long time and they've screwed with people with less power even harder. 
and they continue to do that. So I think, you know, we don't want to minimize that dynamic. We just want to point it all at the state is the violent oppressor, not the source of, you know, creating some better future society where everybody has all of their needs provided for. So trying to, to change that dynamic and also talk about race in a way that doesn't like minimize the, the actual historical context is, is very challenging. Um, but I, I just, so often I, I'm just struck by how, my perspective at least, it seems like so many people who talk so boldly about their white privilege, they're literally just saying that white people have like more power. And yet they're against, they're, it's, it's weird. It's like they're making the argument that white supremacy exists and they're not white supremacists. I don't really know why. Their arguments sound just like the white supremacists would if those people existed, which I guess they do, but I don't see that part of the world. Well, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's strange. It's sad, though. I think really th those are the people I feel the worst for are the people who are preaching ideas that in 30, 40 years, I'm, or 20 years, hopefully, that, you know, people like the, the white fragility lady um, oh God, and book. other, you know, of those read, sorts of things. Book? No, of course not. No, I couldn't do it. I've heard I, her speak before. Uh, I mean, I've watched a couple, you know, clips and, and a longer video of her once. And I mean, like, maybe there's some benefit there. You know, maybe there's some utility that somebody can get out of it. But I think so much I mean, of it like, is so I've, collectivist and it's so reductionist and it's so judgmental. And then it, so all of those reasons make it like, like those reasons right there make it not being a student, right? A lot of times those people use the phrase like we got to do the work. And what that means is just submit to what we say. <laughs> like I, I view the people that go so far that they like call everything the culture of white supremacy. I view those people as yeah. as wrong and problematic as as when guys like Hotep say, you know, dumb collectivist things about Jews. I would say it's now, actually way way worse. Well, I because think it, those people there, Hotep doesn't have a huge following. Hotep isn't on CNN you know, spouting well, yeah. his racist stuff. I mean, there, but there, these there other people some... are. These people have huge positions. They're leaders of the biggest colleges in the country, of the biggest companies. They're stuff that Google puts out all the time. I mean, it's it's stuff that I, I, just, I just, it's it's really weird. I mean, there, it's there exactly is the some... opposite of Martin Luther King. That's the right. thing that gets me is, you know, don't judge people by the color of the skin, by the content of their character. And this, the, the whole, their, their whole narrative is exactly the, the anti-racist narrative is the opposite of that. And that's true. Yeah. The the, the 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 Holocaust stuff it, it, and and things Hotep says, I think they just get taken. Like people are very commonly like they view the Holocaust and Nazi Germany as like the worst things that have happened in history. Like I, like um, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, Jordan Peterson had a conversation once with uh, Sam Harris and um, I'm I'm, I'm playing Douglas Murray. Douglas, Douglas Murray, Murray. that's yeah. the other one. Yes, yes. Yeah. And Douglas Murray once said, like, we're living in what history will call the post-Holocaust, the post-World War II era. And and like that's, one thing, one of the things he said in that conversation was like, there's like like the one thing that we like everybody agrees that we don't want to be is the Nazis. And and I think it's true. Like a lot of people, like, especially when people like have have they they've this is something I see as a Christian. Like when you take off the Christian worldview and you and you reject Christian morality, well, like because humans act, you are still going to have a religion and a system of morality. Like 
you, you, you can't help it. Like we, this is something you and I talked about the last time. Like people well, always you have, have, have a system of subjective values that you right. compare exactly. to each other and, and measure. Yeah. And, and, and so what the culture on the left has seemingly done is like create this really like half-assed, like very loosely congregated set of like, of moral values. And at the top of their hierarchy is Nazis are bad. And it's like, it's how they view their entire worldview, which is like, and it's, it's not that it's wrong to say Nazis are bad, but like when you've reduced your entire world, moral worldview to just like almost primarily being about that, I think that it just creates these weird pathologies where you react to people and you, rea you, you react to, to racism yeah. and bigotry in ways that, that just aren't helpful, that don't actually, sure. that, that, are, that are counterproductive. And I really like, I, I'm sorry, like people, this is one of the things that people have laughed at me about in like those groups, but I just think it's spot on. I really think that the rise of the alt-right and the white identity politics that you've seen is the result of the identity politics, the identity politics the left has played over the past decade. Like, I really think that they are. Is there really it, a movement though of like racist white people gaining political power uh, maybe in europe maybe in like eastern europe i guess there's some yeah i mean like a little bit in europe like with brexit and stuff you could say are you and, talking and, about the lady the can, congresswoman from georgia oh i guess she's kind of out there I, I don't really know what i don't think the alt-right is a huge problem but okay. insofar as yeah, the yeah. alt-right is in existence and or like i was having this conversation the other day like i don't think the alt-right really exists as like a large group of people but it is kind of like a a cultural reactionary tendency that you do see different shades of on the right. And I think to the extent that that exists and that some people get caught up in that and radicalized in that, it, the left is only making that worse, worse sure. and not better. Um, well, think, so, and, and, th and that's what I've tried to encourage yeah. them is to be like, it's not that I like Nazism. It's not that I like, like, for example, the things that Hotep says, but what, what is going to help, like, let's say, like, let, let's, let's focus on Hotep again here. What's going to help him to, like, become better as a person? Is it going to be that he comes into libertarian circles and engages with people who have better ideas and that engage him in good faith? Or if people just shriek at him from afar and say, you Nazi racist piece of shit and keep him yeah. at arm's length? Like, what? Like, well, that just, and, I think, and, absolutely. and that's why... Even about, though I've had yeah. reservations, it's not reservations like saying, let's not talk to him. It's just kind of been like, um, I think the problem is, and this is the other thing that we should talk a bit about here at the end, is that we also have to be careful, I think, you know, on our side, the, the, the Mises crowd, is that we, we do have to be careful to not be reactionary ourselves towards our critics, which is like not to just take every criticism and to, and to, uh, you know, brush it off as like, well, it's just the loser brigade being irrational or being ridiculous. Like I've seen that tendency a little bit. And I think we have to pump the brakes a little bit on that, in my opinion, which is, which is not to say that we should go through our lives and like try to appease the, the everyone on, sure. on, in that crowd. Yeah. But, but like, we have to recognize that like, just because some of them operate in bad faith and overreact doesn't mean that um, there aren't, good bad and you know then conversely really bad and then better ways 
of, of going about these things. And, and for me, it's kind of been about like, uh, like a praxeological thing, which is like, well, you know, our goal is X. So let's come up with the best ways of, of getting there. If our goal is we want, uh, a guy like Hotep, we want to bring him on and, you know, have him be part of the Liberty movement. Like, that's fine. But like, let's, let's do that in the best way possible. And I feel like we've, we, you know, we, we've just the way, I think the way that it, it happened was rushed and a bit clumsy and, and that probably didn't help. And, uh, I think that, you know, just because there are people who are insane about being anti-racists and anti-bigoted, doesn't mean that we should just casually be incense, like 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 desensitized to racism and bigotry. Like I think racism and bigotry are bad, but it's just sure. just because just because overreacting to it, like the left does or the loser brigade does, is bad. Um, and I, I say that just to. I don't know, Fakertarians, loser. I don't know what to call them other than what people have started calling them. It's not my favorite term to use for them. Yeah. But like, just because they overreact to it doesn't mean that we should just not react to it. And I sure. think that that's been like kind of like what I've been pointing out, which is like sure. there are there are degrees to this here. Like we can, and to me, it's just as simple as saying uh, we like that Hotep's an anarchist. Um, yeah, I don't like what he says that the Holocaust didn't happen. I think that's sure. you know wrong and stupid. Like, and that's it. Like, it's not hard, you know, we don't, it's it's something he said once I've heard him interviewed a couple of times. He was very reasonable, pretty funny, pretty entertaining, you know, character had, you know, some kind of, I don't think black nationalism is the right word, but I'm not really sure. It's, it's, what exactly, yeah, it's maybe black identitarianism. Yeah, perhaps. black identitarianism. But like, is, I, I is think, the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he, like, whatever, that's fine. I've, lots of black people are proud and happy to be black. They don't see it as some like badge of grievance or something, or at least, right. you know, black people that I grew up with and, and stuff. And I think the idea that uh, you had said earlier about like Nazis are the worst, and Douglas is Murray's point about that. And I think, if I remember correctly, Douglas then went on to say, and communism didn't get that same rap. It just wasn't right. as obvious to people, right? Right. And even though communism killed, you know, way more people than fascism in the 20th century, or like the communist states did, um, that you know that uh, to me, like the Nazis are a, such a useful example to point at the problems of both the left and the right, of the problems of nationalism, and how you know hyper nationalism and ethno nationalism are very, very dangerous collectivist ideas that allow people to completely, you know, violate any, you know, normal sense of morality. Um, and then on the other side of it, the socialism side of having, uh, you know, the, the sort of bureaucratic control that the Nazi, the party had over so much of the society. And even though, you know, one thing I learned from some more lefty types was that the word privatization was what the Nazis used, but it wasn't really in any real sense of how we would think of privatization now. Right. It was just about kind of shifting it to so that the profits could be somewhat moved and, you know, just used more flexibly than within the party system. And it was a terrible, I mean, just, you know, the worst of, of both the left and the right. And they converged into being, you know, the worst. And everyone notices it was, that it's yeah, the worst. It, it was like, right? And everyone on the was, right says yeah. it's socialism. And the people on the left say the Nazis were nationalists. Right. So everyone wants to point, or at least the normal like left right narrative, they want to say the Nazis are on the other team. Um, like the sort of Dinesh D'Souza version of the argument says that they're leftists and then whatever on the left would say that they're they're right wing, obviously. And I think it's the worst of both worlds. And, and so, 
you know, but I yeah. think libertarians often see the worst of the left and the right. And so that's why the Nazis were so obvious, whereas the communists always had that social justice message. You know, they were killing people because of equality. You know, the, the equality stuff is always at the center of, of uh, the, the communist rhetoric. And I think the phrase cultural Marxism definitely seems more relevant now. I guess it's kind of a pejorative and it's a euphemism for that other people use in whatever ways. But I think it's a, certainly a useful term in terms of dividing people into groups. Like the, to me, the phrase people of color, that's cultural Marxism, at least the way that I view it, the way that, that's what I think of as cultural Marxism in the sense of divide people into groups, pit them against each other to have the revolution to shift the power structures. And on some level, there's good to that argument, right? There, we need to have a shift in power away from the powerful elites, except it's not like the elites as some, uh, you know, the, the, the bougie, just people generally, it's the, the law enforcement apparatus, the welfare warfare state, right? So I think um, but I guess to, to go back to your point about Hotep, the, the one thing that um, that I would just say in the, in the context of, of your argument, like I, I, I agree with where you're coming from. I, I think it's an important conversation to have, especially within the Mises caucus. But I think there also has to be a, a, the we have to address the question of like, what is the goal? Like, are we a big tent organization? And I guess to some degree, having him at a California event is a slightly different question because that is, you know, showing him as a part of the leadership, I guess, it, depending on how you're phrasing the event, right? If it's like have him as a part of a panel to have an interesting discussion, that's one thing versus like giving a lecture on, on something like, you know what I mean? Like that part of it, it just kind of depends. But I think the idea that we want to bring people into our team and someone who I'm pretty sure he said he didn't vote, doesn't vote, thinks voting is basically stupid or pointless or, you know, complicit in the system. And I think if, you know, if someone like that is interested in being a part of the Libertarian Party, we should, you know, wrap, give them a big hug and say, hey, bro, stop saying stupid stuff, you know, and, and explain, exactly. okay, here's, here's like, some evidence, right? What, but but right. the, like, the first how, step is welcome you, and right. love and, and yes, right. and, bring, and, and yeah, glad you're here. Let's talk about other stuff. What other things do we agree with? You know what I mean? Rather than trying to be gatekeepers. Like the, the, the right. and that phrase, I know you didn't like when I, I mentioned that phrase, but I do right. think and, like that's, and, and that's, that's the idea. Yeah. Of it. yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. like gatekeeping and that was sure. definitely not ever yeah. what I was trying to do. And I've, I've tried to be clear. It's like, it was only to, I, I wanted to, cause it's just. Well, and one other thing I just I, wanted to, to add there yeah. is that the, the, to me, to go back to the, the idea of praxeology and, and the study of human action, it, it's also treating people as though they are students. And I think if you believe that your ideas are correct and sustainable and, and they win the argument, then you're not as fearful of the bigoted ideas that other people might have because you view them as students who are just trying to figure it out, right? Like if we're all just here as people trying to figure out how to live our lives, how to act in ways that allow us to you know, pursue our ends, that if you, you know, treat other people with that mindset, then you're guaranteed to be you know, more uh, successful and also have a more accurate view of their ability to learn rather than being condescending or rejecting or intolerant of people. It's just a different form of bigotry. Maybe that's not the best way to put it, but to me, like being anti-Hotep because he had a few bad sentences, um, to me, as long as he, you know, didn't initiate physical violence against other people, um, it's all just talk. It's all just smack talk. Right. And I mean, you know, locker room talk. Oh God, no! Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oh boy. Yeah. And you know, my heart is for, you know, I love the, the, the Mises caucus. I want it to succeed. I do want it to be a big tent. I, I would say some people would also be a little irritated because the caucus might, you know, sometimes outwardly put out a message that's like, it doesn't want to be a big tent. Like it doesn't like the left libertarians. Sure. I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not sure that that is the mentality of the caucus, yeah. you know, so that that's something that could be talked about too. You know, to me, it's just anybody that is, you know, a good libertarian. And I think that people on the left can be good libertarians. Um, you know, like I want to be allied with them. People, I think the, the reason why people get concerned with the Mises caucus is because they, they like, we don't have in our platforms things about immigration and we don't have things in our platform about, about bigotry. And, and people say like, why, why did you leave those out? And there's an identity politics thing. Yeah, there is a thing about identity politics, which to me is well, it's, is it's, fine. Yeah, um, it's okay. And 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 when whatnot. So, but yeah, I mean, my my heart is for the liberty movement to succeed, and the only way that happens is that we have to stop fighting each other and fight the state. You sure. know, and and yeah. Uh, well, and I, yeah, I have many different views from the Mises Caucus. I mean, for one, like I, I don't think end of Fed is an interesting argument. I'm for it, I guess, but I don't think it's possible. And I don't think it really makes that much sense to argue for it because it's fiat currency. They control it. They made it up. They print whenever they want. And just even engaging in that argument just isn't worth Like it's not our dollar. It's the U.S. dollar. Right. And, and I don't know. I just think sometimes with the, the way that the monetary policy stuff is discussed within Mises caucus. And it's like it's not that I disagree with any of the you know Mises theory of property and credit or theory of money and credit argument. I'm, I'm I agree with all of it. I just think that's not relevant anymore. Like you can't have that much debt on the balance sheet in the way that they have the MM and, and also the MMT argument, which I don't know if we ever talked about, but like modern monetary theory and the idea of like the way that those people view the monetary system to me, makes a lot of sense. And it's their solutions are terrible. Like their actual public policy is horrible, but the way that they describe the monetary system just in the descriptive sense is perfectly yeah. useful think, and I think, accurate. I think, the focus anyway, on yeah. the, I think the focus on the Fed is just to, to draw attention to the fact that it is the source of power by which the state is able to commit its worst atrocities. Like without, without the monetary yeah, policy of the Fed, you just, you couldn't have the, the endless wars. You, you really couldn't have the, you know, the expansive yeah. power of the police state. You couldn't have the expansive power of the like the immigration control we or have the student like a loan system or the student the loan system trillion, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Think, so it's, it's exactly it, yeah. so it's it's important to point out i think but it, well, it's probably I, not I the just, first yeah. probably not the first conversation you should have with people no when i think it's uh, way down yeah. the line yeah, <laughs> yeah i think there are so many other more obvious atrocities that the government commits right ways that it hurts people so much more directly that we don't need to go to that and honestly like just from my over the last year or so my view on on just the way to talk and think about what the monetary system is has has shifted not that i and again not that i disagree with the mises claim just that i don't think it's really relevant to what the dollar is as a you know fiat currency today um it's it's a completely losing battle whereas we could you know stop gun control we could stop the killer clock change of daylight or, or make daylight savings permanent and actually, you know, have political progress towards a more peaceful and prosperous society um, 
by focusing on issues that actually we might actually be able to win and, and change some opinions on. So I think that's got to be the goal. And that's a perfect way to, you know, think about it as the means and ends, right? Like, which, where, how can we actually use ourselves as a means to actually accomplish something to reduce, you know, the violent right. ends of the state? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, my friend, it's been fun. Uh, I'm glad to have yes, you on again. And uh, we'll definitely, you know, do this again sometime. Uh, uh, so, yeah, thanks for coming on and hashing all these things out with me. It was, it was, uh, it was, I got a lot out of it. You know, every time, you know, this is the second time we've talked, we've also talked privately. Every time we do, I feel like I learn a little bit and, and get a better understanding of the world and, and a way to, you know, align my personal philosophy and, and stuff to, to work better and to make it, you know, to alter my practice a little bit to, to make it more effective. So I appreciate the conversation and, uh, uh, look forward to having it again soon. Yeah, absolutely, man. This is a lot of fun. Great All job. right, man. Have a Thanks. good night. You too. Bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.